Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats or on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. Subscribe to our feed to get new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right at NationalReview.com. Click on Podcasts, find, uh, find NR episodes, including ours. Listen, enjoy, share. Please leave reviews as well. And check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Help the show stay ad-free as it is. Support our efforts on the program. An entry level for supporting and voting. A mid-level for early access to new shows and higher audio quality on the files. And the upper level, our bestest friends with exclusive content at least once a month. Remastered episodes with song clips, Spotify playlists with our end-of-show choices, and more. Patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram, my tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am feeling good. I wish everyone a happy new year. I, I love you. I love our podcast. I love our guests who join us on the show. I love I love all of the fans who support us. And I promise you, Scott, it's not just the side effects of the cocaine. You sound pretty euphoric. That's, uh, that's how I would describe you. But uh, we'll see how it goes. At Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. Our guest for this part two of David Bowie is our same guest from part one, Damon Linker, senior correspondent at The Week, where he writes three columns a week about politics and culture. You can find him on Twitter at Damon Linker. Yes, he's Damon Linker. Damon, thanks for coming back and joining us once again. I could not be happier to be here. It's been a bit of a lag since our last taping, and I've been chomping at the bit. Really excited to get back into all of this. If you missed part one of our David Bowie episode, we take it from the beginning all the way up through Diamond Dogs and the live album, which means uh, we pick things up this time around Young Americans, and we will drive this sucker all the way uh, past scary monsters and into under pressure before we shut this down. The rest will be in part three. And Jeff, if you want to set us up and, and give us a little uh, insights and in, in sort of atmosphere around what was happening in this transition period, as we'll talk about in a moment with the Young Americans album, in the career of David Bowie. Well, I mean, think about all the places that David Bowie had been up at, until this point and all of the, uh, you know, the various musical modes he had already attacked. You know, so, you know, he went through his Anthony Newley-esque phase. He went through his mime phase, folk singer, heavy metal <laughs> rocker, uh, uh, you know, pop singer, songwriter, and then became Ziggy Stardust and then suddenly conquered the world, went the Diamond Dogs with his dystopian Orwellian antics. And then what happened is that he went on tour in 1974, and that tour was mostly confined to the United States because he was still absolutely dead set on conquering the country. And uh, the other thing that absolutely needs to be mentioned at this point is that uh, his drug dependency <laughs> is about to go to places that very few human beings ever <laughs> reach or successfully return from. Uh, I think he, he's pointed out that the cover of David Live, the way he looks, he's so gaunt and thin with like, you know, that that weird ultra orange dyed hair. Mm -hmm. And like, it's almost like, you know, his lips are like smacking over his teeth like a death's head rictus. He said, yeah, they should have called that album. David Bowie is alive and living only in theory. <laughs> um, which is, you know, parody on Jacques Brel is alive and living in Paris. Um, this was his lowest point 
Well, no, not his lowest point, because actually I think it would actually get just a little bit lower on the next record. But this is also the point where he decided that he really wanted to spend time exploring what had really excited him the most about uh, popular music during that era. And it wasn't Ziggy Stardust rock. It wasn't, you know, the Mick Ronson stuff, which is why he so quickly turned away from him and from that kind of music. He was, in, he was interested in soul music, specifically Philadelphia soul music. the second leg of the diamond dogs tour he jettisoned all of the sets all of the you know the the you know the garish staging stuff and the acrobats and all of that and he he basically started putting on he was something that was like half you know diamond dogs and half soul review he ended up playing these funked up versions of john i'm only dancing called john i'm only dancing again which was this like hilarious rewrite of the song ended up adding new tunes that no one had ever heard before a song called it's gonna be me a song called young americans a song called uh, uh right uh you know these things that had not been heard before and were a complete left turn from everywhere he had been prior to diamond dogs the first hints you get of this new mode come on the song 1984 on diamond dogs that right. soul approach that he brings on it yeah. but that of course leads us to unexpectedly his big commercial breakthrough in the United States, which is the album Young Americans. This comes out in early 1975, but in all respects, it's really an album that belongs to, say, the latter months of 1974, where he was retorting it at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia. And uh, this is the one that has, you know, Luther Vandross, mm -hmm. you know, doing backing vocals and, and, and getting co-writing credits on songs. This is the one with all of the, you know, the really incredibly well orchestrated and well, like, you know, uh, 
misplaced backing girls singing you know those great harmonies this is the one that's the so-called plastic soul album and this is the one that was a huge success in its time but whose whose artistic reputation has i think faded a lot in in since then and i think unjustifiably so because there are a lot of people who do not like young americans they think it's their least favorite bowie album of the 70s i think it's a fantastic album i think it's one of his finer albums, I think it is also one of his most personal and confessional albums. And that's one of the things that gets lost with all this incredibly slick-sounding soul music. But Young Americans is an album where he is beginning to bottom out psychologically, and certainly in terms of his health and his drug habits. And uh, the ennui starts showing through in these songs. So you get you know, tracks that sound like they're just slick soul numbers, like Win or Right or Can You Hear Me? But then you listen more closely to the lyrics underneath them and you realize he's starting, the ice is starting to crack in a very strange way and he starts to sing from the heart. I guess the other thing to point out is this is the album that had his two biggest commercial successes until the 1980s, and I think we both know which those which of those two songs they are. I mean, I'm obviously talking about Across the Universe, but um, <laughs> but you know, before I get into it, I wanted to know what are your guys' thoughts on this strange beginning to our new show? His most popular album in a lot of ways, and also uh, one of his least liked albums in a lot of ways. Well, I, I'll, I'll jump in and say that um, I am going to prove my uh, perennial tendency toward uh, adhering to the conventional wisdom and saying that this is not my favorite David Bowie album. Um, I, I like some of it. I think the title track, Young Americans, is a fabulous song, one of his best. Um, and there are moments that are great. His vocals are often excellent. I think Can You Hear Me is a fabulous song. Um, I actually am a champion of the cover of Across the Universe, which has come in for a, an immense mockery over the years, especially when it first came out. Like a lot of people were like, what the hell is this? But, you know, it, it should matter a little that Lennon was actually there in the studio playing on the track. And, uh, you know, he, he was all for Bowie doing it. He was he was quoted as saying, you know, I never thought I really nailed that song for the Beatles. And it would be great to hear a different version. And you have to assume he at least didn't hate it since he was there. And I think it's a really strong, really strong vocal performance from Bowie. Tons of energy, very different than the the 
the fact of the matter is I'm not a big fan of the song Fame. Uh, it, it doesn't really move me at all. I'm, I'm not a James Brown kind of guy. Um, and, you know, I, I guess... I, I guess by the way, album- just to stipulate for the fans, this is the song that David Bowie famously co-wrote with John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Yes, they he met, did. They hung out, and, I, and the funny thing about Fame is that I don't even think uh, it, it's really much of a John Lennon song. Bowie gave him the songwriting credit because I think he just wanted to have the thrill of saying, hey, I wrote a song with one of the guys who was in the Beatles. Uh, oh, because, sure. He essentially just you know gave the original him... version of that song. It's Foot Stomping, which is this cover that they did, yeah. and you can hear live versions of it from that later Diamond Dogs tour, and it is just this riff that Carlos Alomar, his guitarist, came up with. Uh, and then they just repurposed it to these incredibly bitter lyrics about the emptiness of fame and fortune. If I, if I remember, I, Lennon essentially just gave him the, the the way of singing the word fame, and for fame. that for that got the songwriting credit. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the only other thing I guess I would add at this point is that um, the way the album was put together, uh, it was all pretty much set to go with with the usual. I mean, he's now back with Tony Visconti. We we should get back to that at some point because they had right. been they worked together on the Space Oddity album years before, and then Bowie had gone off and worked with other producers. Now Tony's back, and he's there in the booth, and they pretty much have the album wrapped up, and then Bowie goes off while Tony's working on a mix and he meets Bo he meets Lennon again. They had run into each other at a party a few months earlier. They go out, they're probably snorting lines or whatever, drinking, parting it up. And they end up getting inspired to go to a studio. They gather a bunch of musicians together and they're jamming. And out of those sessions come across the universe and fame. And so Bowie comes back to Visconti and says, sorry, buddy, not only, did you not get to produce these two songs I just recorded with John Lennon? <laughs> but we're going to bump two of the ones you've been working on to make room for these two Lennon tracks. And they're two of the best songs from those entire sessions, which I'll get well, to. Well, and it became Bowie's biggest hit single in his whole career. So, uh, you know, poor Tony Visconti. But uh, it's the songs that got bumped, though. You mentioned It's Going to Be Me, which is a really slow, simmering soul ballad. And another song called Who Can I Be Now, which oh, is a, yeah. a mid-tempo ballad with a great melody and vocal performance and you can now hear these if you go to uh, you know uh, apple music or any of the other platforms and and look that song up you can hear a perfectly mixed version that was going to be on that album and and it's a fantastic song i would be happier with young americans if those two tracks were on instead of the Lennon tracks and that would have deprived uh, Bowie of his biggest hit single but that's the way I roll I like Young Americans I wonder if uh, if the critical 
sort of reception to it now is 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 in part because of of a thought that it's easier to make this kind of music than than the things he would do next that that for some reason that the, the blue-eyed soul the the plastic soul of young americans is 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 easier it's not quite the artistic accomplishment i'm just guessing because when you play young americans there's nothing wrong with it i mean it sounds good and it feels good and you don't regret listening to it um it's a funky success right it is a total you know left turn of course stylistically from diamond dogs uh it's a totally new band i believe you know carlos alomar we need to mention is this is where carlos alomar enters the picture as a guitarist in the band it would be with bowie he, he'd, been, he'd been playing on the david live tour uh, the second and, half and, right that, i think that, but this is his first album with yeah him. and and he is a, is a sometime co-writer on, on songs and they usually have an alomar touch to them <laughs> you'll know which ones he's co-writing but he is such a, a great addition to the band the way he plays the funkiness that he brings to a lot of these songs and certainly is a it's a perfect fit on this young americans album uh I, I actually kind of agree with damon on fame fame has never been my favorite uh bowie song although the people who he wanted to like it loved it i mean george clinton loved it james brown loved it james uh, Brown loved it so much he, he stole, stole it, it and yeah. we wrote it as his own song <laughs> and so, he was so embarrassed by it that he that they didn't even put it on the box to say, cause i think they were just <laughs> humiliated by the fact that it's just it's just fame but there are there are great track Fascination, which I think was the title track for a little while, uh, is actually it comes out of a Luther Vandross track that they had been uh, the, the, the the opening band on tour had been performing, and it was a song called Funky Music, and so they they took that that song and, and rewrote it. Vandross got a, a co-write on it. Man, that's a great groove. Oh, it's, it's, this is what I mean when I first of all I don't think the kind of music <clears throat> that they make on this album is easy. I to don't make. I don't either. They make it sound easy. And, and that perhaps is is kind of has something to do with there is maybe I think particularly for white critics in the eight in the eighties and the seventies a bias against soul music because they're like oh well you know these just a bunch of guys just grooving around on like you know you know simple figures and changes in the studio anybody could do that no people can't do that <laughs> go listen to the vocal arrangement on fascination. fascination Fascination, fascination, show enough, takes a part of me. That is an incredibly, uh, you know, very, very detailed vocal arrangement mm -hmm. and all those backing singers. And it's just beautiful. I think, I think actually, the number one reason people don't like Young Americans is because the saxophone on every part of this album sounds <laughs> weird and plastic. I think if they got a better sax tone, then people wouldn't say that it sounds so strange and desiccated and, and like inauthentic. But everything else about this music, including you know the the, the, 
the performers, the instrumentalists, and the singers sounds incredibly authentic to me. Again, though, I interrupted you, Scott. What were you saying? And I really like, uh, segue, the saxophone on Somebody Up There Likes Me, which is David Sanborn, of course, who, uh, again, played with them on tour and then came out to play on Young Americans. Is this that lengthy intro that builds up with the Sanborn saxophone and that it's highlighted throughout? Real big chorus, a uh, great call and response buildup. It's the longest song on there, I think, but six and a half minutes or so. Uh, but well worth it. Somebody up there likes me is another highlight of, of the album for me. And by the way, the thing about somebody up there likes me, would you have ever thought, unless you just scanned that lyric with a fine-tooth comb, that it's a song about a political demagogue? That's what <laughs> no. it's about. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, people just think somebody up there likes me. Oh, that's nice. It's the Rocky Marciano biography, I think. Um, <laughs> no, that's not what the song is about. He's about like a politician who's hugging all the babies, kissing all the ladies. Um, he's the savage son of the TV2, Planets Wrote the Day Was Due, the wisest men around predicted that a man was found who'd look a lot like you and me. And what are they talking about? They're talking about, you know, that demagogue who runs for president and becomes like, you know, a cult figure. And boy, I guess that's, uh, you know, maybe today more than most days. It's a semi-relevant point to make. But that's a song that everybody just thinks is like a gauzy love tune. It's about really deep and weird political concerns that he would actually be exploring on his next album, you know, on stuff like station to station and the whole thin white Duke persona and yeah, all that. Yeah. But he, he completely elides the truth of that song by the way it's presented. You think it's, you think it's this, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, nice, happy love song, but then you don't realize that it, he's singing about how, you know, this man's ever-loving face smiles <laughs> on the whole human race, like Big Brother on the wall who is watching you. Really strange. I'll say as I hand off to Jeff is uh, I know you're going to mention uh, Who Can I Be Now, which um, is, is just a fantastic track. And uh, I, I agree with Damon. I'd like it better if it were on there, but uh, it's also a super strong album to leave without Who Can I Be Now. I, I think this album, as I said in the introduction, is just so underrated. I think, you know, fame, we all agree fame actually like a little bit more maybe than you two do. I think there's a, there's a really nasty kind of biting down on tinfoil core to the lyric of fame. Mm. You have the emptiness of it. You know, like what you like is in the limo. Fame, what you get is no tomorrow. What you need, you have to borrow. And what he meant by that is like the way he was like, you know, supposedly making all this money, but his right. manager was taking <laughs> it all. And he lived on an allowance. He basically had to ask his manager to give him cash. Now, of course, to be fair, he was using that cash to buy giant mountains of cocaine. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's, it's 
still like a very you know a, a very bitter rumination on the emptiness of this entire pursuit that he devoted his life up until that point to um but it's not my favorite song on the album i think the other one i, I don't like i don't like that across the universe cover you know and I, I grant damon his right to think it's okay uh i never liked the original either for that matter so maybe the problem is i don't <laughs> like the underlying song but everything else on here is great you know you know right getting it on the right thing never gonna turn it back that's a fantastic tune I think the title track, Young Americans, is another one of those songs that is, is very much of its time, given the way that it dates itself with all the lines like, do you remember your President Nixon? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still think, again, that the lyric is just so smart. You know, it's, it, of course, is a somewhat acerbic commentary on, uh, you, know, you know, I guess this is prefiguring yuppiedom, you know, like, you know, the way all these young Americans, you know, are you know, going to grow up and give up their dreams and just sort of become cynical adults, you know, even in the, in the uh, you know, the opening line where, you know, he pulled in just behind the bridge, he laid her, he laid her down, you know, she took his babies, took him nowhere, heaven knows it would have taken anything. Um, but the other thing I have to admit is that the thing just bangs. <laughs> you know, at the final verse, the single edit of this song is superior actually to the album version, which cuts out that sort of slower middle section, and it just goes, you know, when he goes into the Dave into the John Lennon reference, you know, like I heard the news today, oh boy, mm-hmm. all of a sudden for some reason the day in the life is coming into this song, and yet it works. You ain't a Creativity is there, and uh, I, I just I think that far too many people don't appreciate how well put together these songs are, and also I guess how con- confessional they are. I always thought that one reason why "Who Can I Be Now" and "It's Gonna Be Me" were dropped from the album isn't just the John Lennon thing. Like, of course, David Bowie wasn't stupid; he understood that he had a number one hit single on his hands. This was David Bowie's first, and I think, gosh, only number one hit single in in, uh, in the United States I think so. was "Fame." Um, yeah. yeah, you know, he, but. More importantly, I also think that he may have been a little uncomfortable with that lyric and who can I be now because it's just so personal. You know, he says, if it's all a vast creation, putting on a face that's new, someone has to see a role for him and me. Someone might as well be you. Please help me. Who can I be now? Who can I be now? That chorus, that tumbling, epic chorus. You found me. You know, now can I be? Can I be real? Um, That's... That's him, I think, from a very low place, screaming and trying to get out of the persona that he had created for himself and the sort of the accumulated insanity of fame and madness that was coming upon him. Uh, and he 
he, you know, he, he's on this ride, this enormous ride, and he has no idea what to do. great BBC documentary made around this time called Cracked Actor uh, by Alan Yentop. And it's, you know, it's out there. You can find it. Um, uh, it, it follows him around the, the Young Americans era and the, the later Diamond Dogs tour. And he is just so not with it. Like, you know, <laughs> he, he, he looks like a, he looks like an actual spaceman. And, and the funny thing is, is that a, a director named Nicholas Reg saw this documentary and he was like working up on the early concepts for a, a sci-fi film that he was doing. It was an adaptation of a novel called "The Man Who Fell to Earth," and he was wondering who do I cast as, you know, my lead character? Who do I cast as Thomas Jerome Newton, who's this alien who comes from another planet to save his planet, uh, and you know, comes to Earth and eventually ends up captured by our society and by, you know, his weaknesses and, and fails in his job. Who do I find to play that role? And he saw David Bowie on Cracked Actor, and he's like, you know what? I found my I found my Thomas Jerome Newton, and so that's what ends up happening. You know, this is the thing where we also want to talk about a little bit at least. David Bowie is a, a fantastic actor, and this is his most important role uh, in The Man Who Fell to Earth, and uh, it's really important because you know David Bowie says, you know, like, I, I I took that role, and I don't think I left it for another year. Uh, all throughout the year 1975 and 1976, the first half of it at least, uh, this is the person who he was going to feel like he was playing, a man completely alienated from society, his paranoia at an all-time high, isolated, surrounded, by, if by anyone, then by, by flatterers and panderers and drug dealers and people who would indulge all of his, his desires and give him anything he wants. He's living in Los Angeles this time, filming the movie. And then when he gets done, he goes straight into the recording sessions for his next album. His next album is an album that he says, he said to the day he died, he's like, I literally can't even remember recording this. He was on so much cocaine at the time, so many drugs. He was living on a diet of cocaine and peppers. He would eat peppers. He was probably as thin as he's ever been, like nearly 100 pounds or such. Um, it is shocking to see the, the, the photos from that time. I mean, you can just search David I, Bowie 1975 and look at some of those pictures. I, he does not. He looks very ill. He looks very unwell. And, of course, the supreme irony of this is that he ended up recording his greatest album of all time. <laughs> and that, of course, is Station to Station.
Station to station, I don't know if I would say that it is the greatest Bowie. Uh, I, I will have a nomination for another uh, record for later in our segment tonight uh, for that distinction, but it is certainly one of the best. Station to Station is a truly great album, very inspired. The fact that Bowie does say that he can't even remember recording it as a, a real tribute to what you can do when you're totally bl blitzed out of your mind on drugs because because it is the idea that he was completely blotto while writing and recording and arranging and performing on this music is is almost beyond belief. You would never guess it. Yeah, uh, he sounds so engaged in the music. He is, and, and, and some of the songs, which I'm sure we will uh, expand on when, when yeah. I come back to you guys, I mean, Station to Station is the longest song Bowie ever put on a record. It's 10 minutes long. It is an epic. Its lyrics are, are episodic and bizarre and powerful. Uh, it, the performance of the band is, is astonishing. We haven't mentioned Earl Slick yet, who came on board with the the Diamonds Dogs tour and then was there for the like, Young American Sessions. And he's now uh, part of the core of the band, usually on lead guitar with Carlos Alomar on rhythm guitar. And the performances on the song Station to Station, which opens the record, is, is just breathtaking just brilliant um and it's and yeah you know, jeff is so good at kind of evoking the lyrical themes in bowie's music i'll, I'll let him go off on that when it gets back to him but oh, it thanks. is you're throwing it, a grenade it is, into my lap no no you're i'm sure you'll have great things to say about it i mean it, it's about so many things in his life. He was getting interested in weird conspiratorial mystical ideas. He was flirting with at least being fascinated by fascism and some comments that are notorious. He made in an interview in this period. Yeah, and, with, Cameron and, Crow, with Cameron Crowe, he was actually yeah. also averring that there were witches in Los Angeles. He was living in a darkened room in Los Angeles, and he said that there were witches outside who were trying to steal his semen. If you want to have an idea of what David Bowie's mind was at during the writing right. of the lyrics from Station to Station... Like you, you read and listen to the lyrics of, of the song "Station to Station." This is 
this is a strange kind of uh, evocative, mystical meditation on, well, I mean, station to station has has many meanings. They, when the song starts, you hear a train going from speaker to speaker. So travel, the tours that he's been on, but then also the stations of the cross in Christianity and his feeling of his life being a kind of a kind of delightful torment uh, that he's abusing himself with the drugs and the the exaltations of the of the ecstasy of the drugs that he's on all the time but he also is aware that it is in effect that he is in effect risking killing himself with it and 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 then you get for me the other truly transcendently great song in the album is word on a wing which is a six minute track that is as he says in this fabulous i recommend to listeners to listen to the 1999 a VH1 storytellers, which you can get, uh, where he plays a number of unusual tracks from his catalog and tells very good stories about them. He does word on a wing in that, and he talks about this song and and gives the line about how, well, for much of 1975 and much of 1976 and for the latter half of 74 and the first few months of 77, <laughs> I was so blitzed out of my mind on cocaine that I didn't know what was happening and and I can't remember almost anything about writing or recording this album but this song is a prayer it's a prayer for help absolutely a cry for help and it is it is you would not no one who has a cursory knowledge of Bowie would associate him as writing a song that's a kind of prayer to God for salvation or redemption that's what this song is and it is absolutely brilliant musically uh, it, it modulates through several keys in a way that almost nobody in popular music would try to do except for Bowie. Uh, in that respect, it's a, a kind of throwback to the, the brilliance of the songwriting on Hunky Dory. Um, but it's nothing but a 1976 Bowie track with fabulous... Uh, piano work from Roy Bitten, who strolls in from a Springsteen tour <laughs> on the Born to Run tour and ends up sitting in for a few days and adds piano to tracks across the album. I'm going to leave TVC15 to, to you, Jeff, because I know you love that track, but piano work on that as well. Just, just mind-blowingly great. Great, great album.
I think it's hilarious that you know, and I, I, I'm a big fan of Springsteen. We did a two-part episode on Bruce Springsteen not too long ago, uh, and Roy Bitten is a, a, a wonderful part of the E Street Band, but he gave his best work to David Bowie on this album, and then later on on Scary Monsters as well. You think it's better I than, know, his, I think it's, uh, better than his work with Meatloaf? Yeah, he also played with Meatloaf, <laughs> but I'm not a huge Meatloaf fan. Yeah. He, you can, uh, he, he actually has said that, that the sessions that he cut with Bowie on Station to Station are some of the best work he's ever done, and it's true. It's amazing. how It's the difference between, I think, and I love Springsteen, too. I could have been your guest on, a spring, on your Springsteen shows just as easily as these. Um, but it's also true that Bitten's piano work for Springsteen is very much a kind of embellishment on top of what are basically fairly simple, you know, strong, solid Springsteen Americana rock songs. Right. Whereas with Bowie, he, he kind of fits into a band groove where he is absolutely crucial to the sound of these songs. And it's almost impossible to imagine them without his his addition to them. It's amazing. I mean, to, to imagine Word on a Wing without Roy Bitten playing mm -hmm. it, um, you know, actually, there are pretty good live versions of it elsewhere. But on the album, that soaring piano part, it, it, it's... The first time you hear that song, you know, as you pointed out, Damon, you, you might even think to yourself, well, is this really sincere? This is David Bowie in the middle of his drug phase making a prayer. It, you, there's that, that great line in it where he says, you know, just because I believe don't mean I don't think as well. Don't have to question everything in heaven or hell. Lord, I kneel and offer you my word on a wing, and I am trying hard to fit among your scheme of things. Uh and then when you hear Roy Pitton just playing these, you know, dun, 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 dun behind him, uh, you realize at that point that it's entirely sincere. You realize that there is, there's no there's no pretense. There's no imposture here. And this is why I think the irony is that this is an album that begins with like the, the most sort of sort of bizarre and crabbed and elaborate, you know, you know, character yet this thin white duke throwing darts in lovers eyes. But the, but the rest of this album actually has like kind of a very deep confession, uh, confessional aspect to it. And, and no more clearly than in that song. Um, do you have anything more you wanted to add or do you want to just have Scott, you know, take his shot? at? I want to give Scott a chance. I want to dwell on this album. This album is, as I said, it's my favorite David Bowie album of all time. Scott, I know it is, and that of course made me uh, gave me the inspiration to try to, to to poke holes at it and say, well, it's not as good as Jeff says, of course. Uh, and I don't know, it's uh, if it's not the best uh, album of this era, it's certainly extremely close. It, it is fabulous. Um, there's only what there's only six songs on the album, uh, and they're all outstanding. All of them are outstanding. Um, They've been talked a lot about Station to Station, which, again, is 10 minutes plus in length and, what, two minutes before anything really even happens in the song musically. You know, there's the, the train, and, but it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful song. And Word on a Wing, you guys both said it, you know, it's a, it's a hymn, it's a, it's a prayer, it truly is. And the way the lyrics sort of change, he says he's ready to shape the scheme, and I think it's the very next verse, or he says, then he says he's trying to fit among your scheme of things, you know, like learning as he goes, lyrically through word on a wing. I've always really loved Golden Years, which is the one semi-throwback to Young Americans. It's the one track here 
that is closest to having that sort of funk groove from young Americans. Uh, I, I love the melodica that Bowie plays on Golden Years. The, the transitions from section to section in Golden Years are, are fantastic. The first 10 seconds grab you. You know, we, we talked uh, on the Petty episode a long, long time ago about how uh, the, the gift that Tom Petty had of uh, writing lyrics in which you're, you're directly placed into the action. Like the first, Everyone knows the first line of like 12 Petty songs because they're you, you're placed right inside the action that's already happening. Bowie has this amazing gift, I, I think, of writing these these intros, these beginnings to songs that are impossible to ignore, that are impossible that you don't want to hear more. I, I think back to uh, the last episode when we talked about, you know, like Panic in Detroit or Cracked Actor, both those songs, the first 15, 20 seconds of those songs are just undeniably good. How would you not want to hear more of that song? Uh, Golden Years is is the same way, right? It, it does have sort of that plastic soul feel, but it's a little harsher. It's a little uh, edgier on station to station. Uh, I, I, I also like- think there's something about the rhythm and the meter of the way he delivers lyrics on that song that really works. You know, he has you know just the normal verse. Don't let me, don't let me hear you say life's taking you nowhere. Um, but then he goes into the into the middle part of the song, and he has it was like, some of these days and yes, it won't that, be long. Yeah. I'm gonna drive back down <laughs> where you once come from in the back of a dream car 20 foot long don't cry my sweet don't break my heart wish upon wish upon day upon day i believe oh lord i believe all the way just the vocals from the low to the high it sounds so confident it doesn't sound plastic in any way or in, in slick in any way some of these days and it won't be long gonna drive back down where you once belong in the back of a dream car 20 foot long don't cry my sweet don't break my heart just amusing to remember that he was completely at his absolute lowest mm-hmm. in terms of his drug intake when he wrote a song that sounds completely confident and self-possessed he actually went on like soul train to play this song yeah. uh, before the album came out and it's like one of the most he thinks it was one of the most embarrassing moments of his career because he was just he was so unprepared and you know he was blowing it and like one of the compeers came over to him like in the middle of a take and he's like Hey, you know, David Bowie, like there are a lot of black stars who would give their entire lives to be able to have the shot that you have to play this song on this show. And you're messing it up. And then he says, like, you know, he just felt so embarrassed about that. 
it was like one of those moments where he realized that he, he he'd just been making a terrible mistake, you know, that he'd been throwing away the opportunity that he'd been given. But you don't hear any of that in the original version of the song, which, I mean, you know, as legend has it, he, he apparently was trying to give to Elvis Presley, right. but Elvis didn't want anything to do with it because, boy, you know, Elvis, Elvis you know, shouldn't have let Colonel Tom make those decisions for him because this would have been a great Elvis song. I too. think so, too. When I read that, I'm like, you know what? I could hear Elvis doing that. That, that would yeah. work. Uh, the other one I want to mention before Jeff takes it is uh, is Stay, uh, a cover song. Johnny Mathis did it previously. Anita Simone did it previously. The Simone version is the one that Bowie apparently really liked. Uh, I really like this version of Stay. It just has that icy, edgy feel that is the uh, embodiment of that thin white Duke character that is throughout the station to station. Uh, Slick plays an incredible funky lead lick that sort of that, that, that drives that song uh, the whole way. There's a great bass performance, a wonderful groove. Man, does that sound good? Stays a fantastic song, and uh, and then there are others which I imagine. Well, TVC One Five, which I know Jeff is going to mention here in, in a moment. Uh, another weird one involving an Iggy Pop hallucination. So uh, so in the end, uh, it was hard for me. It was hard for me not to agree in large part with with Jeff that Station to Station is is a, is a peak a peak in Bowie's career. But you're implying that you still somehow found a way to do it or not that i disagree I, I, I don't know if it's the very i don't know if it's the best and it's if it's not it's very close it's probably going to be in my two albums well i mean about a song like tvc15 what is there that you can say i mean it, it is quite <laughs> simply the best song ever written about a girlfriend eating television set and you know now i'm not saying that there are a ton of songs written about television <laughs> sets that swallow your girlfriend like some sort of weird scene out of david cronenberg's video drone but uh, to the extent that there are, this one clearly sits at the top. And it's one of those songs, the first time I heard it, I think the first time I heard it actually was on a Greatest Hits album or something like that. Uh, it'll throw you because like, it begins, it, 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 I can't even characterize the sound that, that comes off of this song. It, it's not soul music anymore. Uh, it's not Plastic Soul says nothing to do with Ziggy Stardust. What is it? It's honky-tonk sci-fi prog rock. <laughs> Is the only way I can put it. It's a very with, good description. It is with the Roy Roy Bitten, you know, with the diddle all these little barrel rolls on the piano. Uh, and then David Bowie doing that little zonked out, oh, uh oh, uh oh. And then he sings they released it as a single which blows me in my mind because like it seems so anti-commercial <laughs> because you know david bowie is singing in, in the most zonked out voice that he had adopted even up until this point you know it's up every evening at a half eight on nine and, and he, he's almost like panting the words out like up every evening about a half eight or nine <laughs> he does not sound it's, it's like david burke <laughs> yeah he does Absolutely he does. One of these nights I may just crawl down that rainbow wave. That is such a David Burns. It's like Remain in Light about four years earlier. Four years before it happened and a year before Talking Heads recorded their first album for that matter. Uh, But when it gets to that absolutely irresistible transition, 
transmission. And then it's all built around Roy Bitten. And then Earl Slick making these weird, shrieky noises in his guitar in the background that are mirrored by my son's shrieking noises behind me. I don't know if you can hear those. Uh, but then it kicks into that instrumental part, the Oh My TVC15. And it's completely shifted gears. It shifts gears three times throughout the song. And that final play out is like, this is a song that's five and a half minutes long, all right? Uh, it deserves to be ten and a half minutes long. You can get away with a multitude of sins when you have that kind of furious instrumental band groove that you get on the middle and then the end of TVC15. It actually might be my single favorite <laughs> David Bowie song of all time. I, because of the lyrical content and the, just the whole jaunty vibe of it, I'm too dark of a guy to feel that way about <laughs> it. But I will concede that for for a kind of self-contained jam session of a song, it is clearly Bowie's best moment. I mean, so if it is, it is people who again who are not huge Bowie fanatics, and I frankly I don't know if you would be in you know hour four of the podcast on David <laughs> Bowie if you were not. However, I would just say like TBC one five is not what you would think of by kind of the public persona of David Bowie. It is it is a total jam out rocking mm -hmm. uh, barrel house. As you so, what? How did you describe it? As like a honky tonk sci-fi prog yeah. rock. <laughs> exactly, honky tonk is the perfect word. That's what you need in there. But it's not as it's not quite as as light as that. There is because that prog element is in there with the shifts in tempo and 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 everything about it. And and again, Roy Bitton's piano work. I I am just in awe of the man right here. It's incredible. It is. It is incredible. I mean, everything he contributes to this album is 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 just absolutely diamond quality i think it does also a fantastic job on the title track uh, which is you know you mentioned it earlier uh, when we were opening the discussion of this album but you know station to station is a song that is about so many things i think one thing that really actually needs to be emphasized which wasn't mentioned is that it's also a song in a lot of ways musically about Kraftwerk. All right, which is a band that David Bowie had been listening a lot to and would, as we will find out soon enough, start informing a lot of his musical choices in the upcoming years. Um, this is, of course, the German Krautrock band, and they're famous for their very you know, mechanized and you know, strict time 
uh, you know, rhythmic, propulsive music. You know, you, th you think of Kraftwerk, you think of Noi. These are my two favorite, uh, you know, sort of that mid-70s Krautrock group, you know, style. I think Can is actually my favorite of that genre, but they're a very different sort of proposition. Um, but that's where you get that, you know, the dunk, 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 the train whistle blows. And, you know, that, you know, that whole big sort of, you know, like giant gears turning, you know, like oh, giant train wheels turning, the return of the thin white duke throwing darts in lovers' eyes. And uh, the other thing that it, it needs to be emphasized is that it's so different from – not only is that part different from the rest of the song, and you know, once it gets into the, you know, it's not the side effects of the cocaine, <laughs> you know, uh, it's I'm thinking that it must be love, and you know, it's too late to be grateful, it's too late to be hateful. Then you're into like you know a very angry rock sound, uh, but think about how different that song sounds from Golden Years, and how different Golden Years sounds from Word on a Wing, and how different Word on a Wing sounds from TVC15, and then you have Stay, which is a pure funk rock song about the emptiness of love and sort of you know transient romantic attachment, and then it ends with this torch ballad. It ends with Wild as the Wind, which is you know, David Bowie has never actually been one of my favorite cover artists. But this is by far the best song that he has ever covered. I love Wild as the Wind, and it's so slow. And so, you know, it takes its time to move through everything. And Bowie gives it his most operatic, frankly, sounding vocal, which is fitting because he's singing kind of a torch song from the 50s that I think originally was written as like a, a, a theme for a movie soundtrack or something like that. Um, but you just, you, the candles are burning. You know, the low light is there. You just see darkness and low light and candles. It's, you know, here's a, a, an positive image, but I think of that that stupid video for the police is wrapped around your finger, you know, where <laughs> Stink is running around the room with all the candles and yes. all that. That's what I think of visually when I think of Wild as the Wind, and I love that song, too. I, I agree with everything you said. I do want to quickly loop back to the title track, uh, yep. just because, I, first of all, there's there's weird Kabbalistic stuff going on here, where he sings a "Here We Are," one magical movement from Kether to Mathka, which is which is yeah. Hebrew out of Kabbalism, meaning 
crown and kingdom. It's not entirely clear what exactly he's constructing with this image of the thin white duke throwing darts in lovers' eyes, but very evocative images, bending sound, lost in my circle, dredging the ocean, flashing no color, tall in my room overlooking the ocean. And he was in L.A. at this point. But for me, the be- I loved this whole song from beginning to end, but my favorite part is the transitional period part of it that sort of is like a bridge in a way but it's really not it's it's literally like a one minute transition between the two long sections of the of the song you mentioned jeff that on young americans one reason why he maybe cut a track or two is because they were the lyrics were too personal i think if that's true then something definitely has changed already less than a year later recording this because in addition to uh, word on a win uh um, uh, word on a wing, you have this incredibly powerful passage, which I think musically is yeah. uh, has a lovely melody to it where he breaks into and sings, once there were mountains on mountains and once there were songbirds to soar with and once I could never be down. I've got to keep searching and searching. Oh, what will I be believing and who will connect me with love? Wonderful, wonderful, wonder when. Have you sought fortune evasive and shy? Well, drink to the men who protect you and I. Oh, drink, drink, raise your raise glass. Your glass. Yes. And then into it's not the side effects of the cocaine. It must be love. It's too late to be grateful. It's too late to be late again. The European man is here. It's it's just uh, it's it's one of those things where like a lyric, you can't really explain what it's about. You just have to kind of listen to it or quote it. And it is what it is. And it's just incredibly powerful, Uh, incredible work. Um, I mean, I guess at this point, you know, this is this is the low, uh, which is, I guess, an appropriate way of terming it, given what David Bowie's next album would be called. Uh, this is his true low. You know, I, you know, he's never going to be more strung out on drugs. Uh, you know, there's also some stuff that I've always felt is actually kind of tabloidy and not nearly worth as much attention as is generally paid to it. Like this, the, the infamous Victoria Station incident where, you know, he comes back to England, he gets mm-hmm. off the train, he's in a car and, you know, he's, he's waving to his fans and some tabloid photographer like took a photograph of him where his arm was out, you know, waving to them. Uh, but just at the point where it looked like he was giving a Nazi salute which he wasn't, okay? David Bowie was not actually doing the Heil Hitler salute. It was just him waving to his fans, and they caught him at the wrong time. But, of course, it was a huge scandal in the British press. You know, David Bowie, neo-Nazi, and, of course, it didn't help that he was doing this weird, weird German expressionist thing with the thin white duke and the ice solar tour in 1976 where he's walking out and doing very kind of like Weimar Germany kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but... You know, all of this comes crashing down upon his head, and I think he just realizes at this point that I, I have to get out of here, and I have to, I have to make some kind of change in my life. Now, it, the legend, of course, has never actually been the real truth. It's not like David Bowie went and became a cenobitic monk or anything <laughs> like that. All right, he he was definitely using drugs for quite some time after this. And in fact, what we're going to then start referring to as the Berlin trilogy, well actually most of these albums weren't recorded in Berlin at all. They were recorded in like Switzerland or France or something like that. Only Heroes is truly an all Berlin album. Um but what needs to be mentioned first is that he took a friend with him. And that friend is a guy named Jim Osterberg, uh, otherwise more, more well known as Iggy pop, 
who, of course, he produced the Stooges' raw power back in 1973. Uh, he'd always been fascinated with the Stooges. He'd been friends with Iggy. And Iggy Pop is a really interesting character in his own right. You know, he plays this madman on stage and certainly has his own share of drug stories and such. But he's a very intelligent and bookish person in real life. Like, he's actually the, the joke that David Bowie would tell when they were living in Berlin together is that, you know, he'd come downstairs in their flat that they shared together and there would be Iggy Pop reading the Wall Street Journal and eating cereal. Like, you know, with his glasses on, just sort of like, you know, like, or maybe doing the New York Times crossword puzzle or reading, you know, the Berlin papers. That's the kind of person that Iggy Pop was when he wasn't going insane on stage. Um, and the other reason that matters is that the thing that David Bowie did next was not the album Low, as a lot of people might, you know, immediately think that's what we're going to move on to next. No, uh, David Bowie produced uh, Iggy Pop's next record, and it's called The Idiot. I think it's Iggy Pop's greatest album of all time. And the reason this is – Iggy Pop – or Bowie had produced a lot of albums prior to this. You know, <clears throat> I didn't talk about Transformer by Lou Reed. I didn't talk about All the Young Dudes by Montha Hoople or, uh, or even about Raw Power. The reason this one is different is because David Bowie didn't just produce The Idiot. He played almost every instrument on The Idiot, and he wrote all the music for The Idiot. And in fact, Iggy himself has said, "Is like, yeah, I'm pretty sure David was basically using me as like, you know, an experimental sounding board <laughs> for his ideas during this time. That if he wanted to come up with, you know, something to do or some concept to test out, that I'd be the guinea pig. Um, that said, a lot of Iggy Pop, like, hardcore fans don't like this album because it's so different from everything else in his discography. I love it, but that's because I love the whole Berlin era David Bowie sound and trip. And I think this is a fantastic masterpiece of a record. And I know, Damon, you're not a huge fan of it. Scott, I don't know what you think about it, but I just want to point out at least a couple of songs on this because it basically is, if you want to know where the sound of low comes from after station to station, you have to take a stop at the station that is the idiot. Because you hear songs like China Girl and Sister Midnight and Night Clubbing, and that is the sound of David Bowie's future through the voice of Iggy Pop. Yeah, and Sister Midnight's going to come back uh, in the future. As uh, Red Money, yeah. I, I like The Idiot a lot. Um, uh, I think it's a very, very good album. Uh, the songs that Jeff mentioned, certainly. Night Clubbing, for me, might be the absolute highlight. It's such a great song, this yeah. bloodless drone of a voice, and the lyrics uh, about the, the, the joys of decadence, but it does not sound like anybody's having any fun any whatsoever. fun at all it's so drear yeah uh, it's just great that juxtaposition uh fun time it has this just howling guitar tone uh, you certainly can see some of the steps uh that were taken by bowie in, in producing and putting together the idiot that would carry forward and uh i i, I think it's excellent and i think china girl in particular is the one that i will you know I think that's that's a, that's a better song, and this is saying something because I don't think people are gonna know until we get to it how much I adore Low Heroes, Scary Monsters Lodger. Um, that might be a better song than almost every song on those albums. And this, of course, is a famous song because Bowie himself later came back around to do it for the Let's Dance album, which we'll talk about on our next our next episode, where it has that stupid dee 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 China sound. Ugh, that riff, God. Um, I hate the Let's Dance version of China Girl, but I hate it maybe irrationally so 
because I think that this original version is so dark and so desperate, and it makes you hear the lyrics as they were originally intended. The lyrics on Chanaka are just messed up, where he's just like, you know, I stumble into, ca- into town like a sacred cow with visions of swastikas in my head and plans for everyone. He's basically, you know, it's just a song, what, about colonialism? About, you know, like, you know, white arrogance, I suppose. Like, we, we come into other civilizations and take them over and dominate them. But it's also just set to this, this is mostly Bowie playing this very hacked out guitar, but it's so effective. There's a sadness and a darkness to the original Iggy Pop version of China Girl with Bowie that uh, is just completely lost on the more famous one. can jump in on that and say i largely agree i mean it is it is almost comically funny that that this is a song sort of about the really dark side of what today is called cultural appropriation and yeah. so Bo- bowie's version in 83 with niall rogers is to go make like like cliched chinese music on the track it's it's just it's it's really kind of amusing uh, that they would that they would make that call on there because it's such a bad artistic call. Um, it because it just cuts against the the message of the lyrics in a way that sort of belittles them in a way. Uh, and I agree that the the Iggy Pop version is vastly superior to that. But my own preference, I, I'm not a big Iggy Pop fan as far as like his 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 singing ability or kind of whole persona is just not really my thing so i i would vote for the uh once again the vh1 uh, storytellers uh thing i mentioned from 1999 bowie does a version of uh china girl there which is kind of like his own version of the iggy version <laughs> which i i think is is better than most of the other live versions of his that i've heard um so i i would vote for that one but it seems modeled on the one from the idiot um, i really got actually i should, I should finally make it a point to go hear that vh1 story well, well, they, they throw in the little china music thing at the very very end almost like a kind of joke right. <laughs> at the end 
but the rest of it is very aggressive and and sort of punky um so yeah anyway i the rest of the album you know i definitely hear like in historical terms that if you want to understand the genealogy of of low heroes and lodger that this is a really important document of how bowie got there um and it's interesting that this is before eno is really involved too so that right. shows that like eno's role is has probably been overhyped and we'll probably get back to that uh because i i do think that is the case um, i agree yeah but uh, as a kind of sonic experience, sitting down, listening to The Idiot, you know, I, if I were David Bowie, I would not have bragged to anyone that he produced that album. I think it sounds like it was sort of <laughs> recorded in their closet or something. Well, Tony Visconti said that. So, like, Tony Visconti was given the album to, to mix because he didn't record it, but he, he was given the mix. And he's and like, he was like was, I don't know what the hell to do with this. Yeah, it was like, this is just like a salvage job because they were obviously, like, recording it the way you would almost do demos and stuff like that. And so, so there wasn't a lot you could do to fix it up. Right. Um, so, so this is a demo with Iggy Pop singing, and, and that's just not anything to get me too excited. But again, as a document of how you get from station to station to low in the in the space, as usual with Bowie, just unbelievably compressed. That, uh, of course, Station to Station is released January 76. Low is January 77. This is one year we're talking about. And and he does this in the middle. So this is the kind of crucial stepping stone. So I totally buy that, you know, that that for that it is important. But for me, it's more as just a kind of historical marker. The other thing that's really important for it is that this is where he basically assembles the core band that he's going to be keeping with him for the next four years or so, and it's 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 his it's his rhythm section. You know, Carlos Alomar is already in the band. Carlos is going to be playing with him basically, you know, for years and years, and he comes back later on again um, in the, our next episode. Uh, but then he gets George Murray on bass, and he gets this guy who is got to be one of the most underrated drummers of all time, mm. Dennis Davis. Mm -hmm. Dennis Davis on drums. That guy, like, it's amazing because he he's 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 a guy who can come from like a very funky, you know, you know, funk soul place, R and B place, but he can also play like this strikingly stark avant garde style, which you would that that, that kind of two way versatility is not what you're normally accustomed to seeing in like New York City session men, uh, which is where I think Davis the scene that Davis came out of. He is fantastic for, for Bowie. You're just a little girl with gray eyes. Never mind. Say something. Wait until the crowd cries. Oh, wait until the crowd cries. You're just a little girl with gray eyes. Deep in your room, you never leave. That whole core band is going to be the nucleus of what plays on low heroes, lodger, scary monsters, and super creeps. And of course, the thing is, is that what's going to change throughout all those albums, you know, other than you know the, the writing collaborators, is uh, whichever lead guitarist they decide to get in to like, bring their fireworks. <laughs> and, and on low, it's a guy named Ricky Gardner who. 
I don't really know from too many other things, but mm-hmm. I think he does a fine job on this one. Uh, but of course, there's so much more to say about Lowe just to set it up. This is like when he's the sessions for this really unhappy. He's still strung out pretty badly. He's trying to clean up. He's trying to dry out. But and when you've been addicted to that much cocaine, this is not an immediate thing, right? He's in France. He's also in the middle of breaking up with his manager, Tony DeFries, who we just realized finally had been hornswoggling. That's what the song Fame is really about. Um, uh, but also, he's getting divorced from Angela Bowie. And that's a horrifying situation. And apparently the sessions were constantly interrupted with like her and her lawyers coming in and harassing him. There were horrible shouting arguments and things like that. And it's all funny because the album Low itself is so icy hmm. and calm and cold. And this is the one where when he submitted it to the RCA executives in early 1977, they said, well, like one guy literally came up to him and and said, like, maybe we can just like, you know, give you like, you know, a little more cocaine and send you back to Philadelphia (laughs) so you can make another Young Americans album. They were horrified by it because what is low? Low is, you know. It's not the left turn that people sell it as. It is a huge left turn, but it's not completely unpredictable from station to station. The, the opening track, Station to Station itself, that opening part of the, of the song, boy, I hear a lot of low in that. Just like I heard a lot of, you know, you know every, every one of these albums, Diamond Dogs has hints of what Young Americans would be. Young Americans has hints of what Station to Station would be. Station to Station has hints of what low is going to be, although this break was a lot different than the others. This is an album that is divided into an instrumental section on the second half, and you can call it a song-based section on the first half, but these songs are mostly fragments. They're not fully like written out songs and they certainly have nothing to do with the soul or funk stuff that he had been doing up until this point point. and of course why is that you can say it's because he'd relocated to europe you know i think he there's a song on the, there's a song on this album that's called a new career in a new town mm-hmm. of course another major reason for that is that he he had introduced a collaborator into his working process and that of course is none other than a fellow named brian eno which of one of you wants to talk about the brian eno influence on david bowie well i mean i could say some about it i mean my view of it is that eno well first of all the the to set the record straight for the world um it, you ask most people who are not bowie fanatics like 
what is distinctive about low heroes and lodger they say oh recorded in berlin which as you noted jeff is really not true i mean the latter part of the recording and then the mixing of low was in berlin uh after it was recorded mostly in france at the villa where where exile and main street had been recorded and goodbye Chateau Road. Yes. Yes, yes so um so yeah as in hockey chateau and i and so that uh, you know, th- it, that isn't true. And then most people, most people would assume, oh, well, Eno produced these three albums because everyone associates Eno produced Remain in Light by Talking Heads and some of the seminal U2 albums and all these other really important albums in rock history. And he's associated with these three albums and people assume he produced them, but he did not. These are Tony Visconti albums. Now, yeah. You know, was there. And when you look, especially at the occasional song credits, he actually is by far the most, you know, song credits are on Lodger, the last of these albums, which I think is the one that easily gets the least, the least kind of critical uh, accolades. We'll get there. I'm a big Lodger fan myself. But, um, but, you know, you know, he's credited with co-writing uh, Wars War, which is the first track on side two of Low, an instrumental track. That's the Polish pronunciation and spelling of Warsaw, uh, the, the city in, in Poland. Um, he's co- co-writing credit for that. He gets co-writing credit on Heroes, which, of course, means he deserves a lot because that's one of the all-time <laughs> great Bowie songs. And yep. then he gets co-writing credit on more than half of the songs on Lodger, but that's it. So what you see when you look at the credits for who plays what instruments on the albums, Eno plays a ton of stuff and it's weird things like weird keyboard tracks, kind of proto samplers from the seventies that are, are, you know, things most people today wouldn't even know what the hell it means. He's credited on lodger with a me- cricket menace, which and so my take on the, Eno thing is Eno was a kind of avant-garde, bizarre guy, incredibly creative, totally likes thinking outside of the box, is really into shaking up methods. So like, mm-hmm. so how do we create a song? Bowie's typical way of working was to come into the studio with the rudiments of some songs, usually with basic sketches of melody lines but no lyrics written and often there were no melody lines yet just to groove some chords and he and the band would sort of build up the track together and then at the end sometimes as much sometimes weeks or even a month or two later Bowie would come back having written the lyrics and then he would sing over the recorded tracks now Eno shakes this up he actually makes it so that actually we're going to experiment in the studio I'll start with a groove on a synthesizer or a bass and 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 uh, and you know maybe Bowie's on a keyboard or bring picks up his guitar or a saxophone and they kind of build it up on lodger he actually encourages bowie to make the uh some of the instrumentalists switch instruments and so you have you have carlos alomar playing drums on boys keep swinging (laughs) and and things like that and like pointing at chords on a blackboard and everyone having to just sort of follow along with instant 
uh, instant things. Now, Bowie had experimented with some things like this as far back as Diamond Dogs with like uh, William S. Burrow inspired techniques where you like write a story and then use scissors to cut all the words into individual words like those stickums you put on your uh, refrigerator with different <laughs> right. words. And kind yeah, of kids, throw, kids stickies, yeah. Exactly. You toss them up in the air and wherever they land, that's your lyrics. Uh, he experimented with some of that uh, earlier, but Eno does that with kind of everything, with like chords and arrangements. And, and that, I think, is the key to what Bowie loves about him in this period. It's like a, a total way of thinking outside the box and getting the creative juices going in a totally different way. Take the uh, last thing I'll say is you take what you hear on on Iggy Pop's The Idiot with a kind of sonic palette, and then you add in Eno's sort of avant-garde experimental uh, element, and the result is low. It's such a felicitous collaboration because they, they really absolutely needed one another at this time. You know, Eno himself had, had sort of moved off of lyrical music. He put out those first two albums, uh, Here Come the Warm Jets, uh, first three really, Here Come the Warm Jets, uh, Taking Tiger Mountain, and uh, Another Green World. But then he had gone into ambient music and instrumental music. And so he was perfectly situated to help Bowie, who was himself having, you know, not only writer's block, you know, what with all the cocaine withdrawal and all of that, and, you know, the sort of emotional decompression he was having to deal with with his, his family life and his managerial issues. But, uh, <clears throat> but also he freed up Bowie to just to stop caring about certain things. So there's like one of my favorite songs on this record is called breaking glass. Hmm. Um, and it, it's half a song, you know, it's, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's a song where you, in fact, even they, they and they played it live that they, they kind of over in, they indulged their worst instincts and they added the extra verse, but on the original version, it's just a minute and 40 seconds long. It fades out right after what the chorus might be. And that was what Eno said. He's like, if the song is good as it is, you don't need to expand it. You don't need to make it longer than it needs to be. Just leave it the way it is and it will work. Don't look at the carpet.
then, you know, on other songs, like on Sound and Vision, um, why not have just like the entire opening minute and a half of that can be instrumental? Why not? And of course, that ironically became the big hit single from the record. A huge hit single, in fact, in Great Britain. Um, not as much in America, but uh, what you end up with is an album that nominally seems icy and forbidding and cold and it has always had that reputation for people who aren't familiar with it uh this is like the very fearsome avant-garde david bowie album trust me he'd be making some albums that were a lot more avant-garde and weird later on in his career once we get to an album like outside with brian eno then you're going to find some fearsome sounding music this stuff to me has always been incredibly welcoming and maybe it's just my temperament maybe i am a person who who likes the gloom who likes the cold, the snowiness, the sort of the glacial overlay of this music. But what I love so much about it is it reminds me of one of my favorite albums, of course, of the 21st century, which is Kid A, uh, which is an album that people also dismiss as being too icy and remote and sort of, you know, where's the emotion? But I'm saying that there's a fire underneath it. It's like, imagine if you could see a fire burning inside the center of an ice block there is a fire there. It's just it's it's layered over. You can just see it though, and you can feel it if you put your hands in the right place, and if you get close enough and you listen closely enough. This is an album that um, you know, for all of the reputation that it has as being difficult, I don't find it to be difficult at all. I listen to uh, you know instrumentals like "Speed of Life" or "A New Career in a New Town," and I don't find myself pushed away. I feel inspired by those songs. I feel moved when I hear that harmonica coming in mm. on "A New Career in a New Town." I feel the sadness, the plaintiveness, the sort of the lonely wanderingness of that song. Uh, I don't find that instrumental second half to be very strange in any way, but of course. I'm an art rock weirdo, so maybe Scott feels differently. differently and in fact uh this is the album i think is his greatest from this era if not station to station as we talked previously i i really agree with jeff in that i find essentially all of low uh welcoming i i i don't find it icy i don't find it at arm's length uh you know, when it comes to, to Eno, I wrote down the word facilitator, right? He's the guy yeah. that, that allows 
Bowie to do what he really wants and puts him in the right situation and makes the good suggestion and all those things. Uh, maybe that's the right word to sort of describe what he's doing with a lot of the albums from this era. The first half of Low is so good. And Jeff mentioned that they're not, they're songs, but they're fragments. All, every song on that first side comes in, makes an impact, and then just, and then just disappears, right? It just, the song, it just ends. It's over. That's all it is. Uh, and I love that about the songs. Uh, Jeff mentioned Breaking Glass. Speed of Life is a great song that, that, you know, we'll start to hear some interesting production techniques in these next few albums, too, that Tony Viscotti figures out uh, the drums on Speed of Life and in a number of places on this record. It's the inventide harmonizer yeah. is what it is. And, and the, the, the famous line is when he brought it into Bowie, he's like, this is a machine that f***s with the fabric of time, which is... This is exactly what it does because it'll take those drum sounds and it just immediately you, you hear if you listen to the drums on like you know Speed of Life or Breaking Glass or Sound and Vision, the opening crash of every drum hit goes, and then all of a sudden it goes, yeah, and it goes back up. Like it, it's almost like they're like little gravitational sinkholes with every drum hit because that's the way the even tight harmonizer treats the frequencies of each of those snare hits it's an amazing sound and of course immediately after this album came out everybody yeah. wanted to imitate it Again, the word I just is like splattered, uh, the splattered drum sound that you get yeah. with that even tight harmonizer. I love Speed of Life. That that's a huge hook. That's a there's no no lyrics in the song. That hook is huge. Uh, I mean, it's 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 certainly none of these songs are commercial in the in the standard definition. But Speed of Life is a very catchy song. Uh, always crashing in the same car. I really love the. Uh, the, the song, and again, it's one of those where they they had a third verse. They cut it out. It was uh, it was Bowie doing his best Dylan in, impression, essentially, in, in the third verse, and they they cut it out uh, before putting it uh, on the album. But uh, man, it's it's you know lyrically, you know, someone making the it's same such a mistake. tidy metaphor, isn't yeah. it? it? It's 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 the title itself tells you exactly what it's about. It's about your <laughs> failure to deal with your the same mistakes that you keep making over and over and over again. And of course, the song isn't necessarily about that. He actually talks about a real incident where he was like, you know, obviously presumably coked up speeding around a parking garage. Right. You know, uh, you know, and he ends up crashing the car, but uh that's the line. You're always crashing in the same car. I've that stuck with me my entire life that title because you're not going to be able to come 
up with a better metaphor for that sort of human failing than you will in, in those six words. Oh, but I'm always crashing in the same car. just jump in on that song too yeah. since we're raving about it ricky gardner's guitar yes. solo yes, yes and yes. it's amazing it is yeah. great it is i mean it's that's it's his best moment melodic I mean. and and weirdly treated with pedals it, it, it's a really great guitar solo. yeah that's it's just, a, it, it thins out and it thickens up and then it thins out again it's such a strange guitar sound that that comes out of that, and I feel like that that's Eno's treatment on those things because that's the kind of thing he do with Roxy music back in the in the you know early days with that band as well. Yeah, uh, you get a sense he's he's channeling he's he's running it through some kind of keyboard and right. makes some sort of joystick that he's playing around with or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jeff mentioned a new career in a new town. Uh, I just say that uh, it's it's like this this culture clash of a song. It has this very disco pulse, but of course that that yearning harmonica and it's a really good bridge to the second side, the the instrumental side. And I think these instrumentals um are, are, are superior to the ones on, on Heroes. I like each of them, especially Art Decade. Is They all have this ability to sort of forge this this feeling. I, I, uh, I liken it to you know, going to an art museum and staring at a painting for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Listening to like Art Decade, you get immersed in this world that they want you to feel, to, to see. Art Decade kind of about you know this, this dying city of west berlin it has such an eerie feel to it, it could be on like the, a, a horror movie film score something's around the corner something bad is going to happen all these little echoes and drones that pop yeah. up here and there on our decade that's my that's my favorite uh from the instrumental side but i think they all uh are of very high quality uh, you know weeping wall that's all Bowie. Uh, David mentioned, you know, Eno is playing. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Is right, what that the is. melody is. But uh, uh, Bowie plays everything on that song. Eno doesn't play a thing, and there, there's all these weird xylophones and vibraphones on Weeping Wall. That, that's all Bowie doing the instrumentation on that song. So again, he gets total credit essentially for for for, for Weeping Wall, except for stealing the Scarborough Fair melody, of course. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 just like Station to Station. Uh, there's not really a weak. There's not a weakness. There's not a bad moment. There's not anything you want to move. I think low. Every track has something to praise. It is just a tremendous record. It's funny about you talk about the visual images you get from some of the instrumentals on side too, because I, I, I actually get a very different feel off of Art Decade. I understand that, you know, what he wrote it about was about you know West Berlin or East Berlin rather, really. Um, uh, and yet for me, it's almost been like. 
There's an old book we read in high school called Snow Falling on Cedars. what I always think of when I think of that song I think of I think of like my old childhood memories of sitting outside my bedroom window on a cold winter's night watching the snowflakes fall down because I think you know you have the slightly jingly you know in the background and that sort of placid uh, you know instrumental move throughout the chords during the song and it it doesn't feel creepy to me in a way that subterraneans the final song on the album that feels very sad and very lamenting and very creepy um but i think i the one that i also want to mention is is by the way i've been pronouncing this wrong my entire life damien you actually seem to have the correct <laughs> i was always said warzawa Oh, shows you what I know about Polish language. So well, I, I, re- I don't. I don't know. I don't speak Polish. I I, I pronounce it Warsaw, but Warsaw sounds right because we call the city Warsaw. So we're probably right. you know that probably sounds more correct. But the point is, is that song is as far from the mainstream as David Bowie ever got in the 1970s, and I think it's one of the most beautiful things that he ever did. I seem to recall the story is that it was like you know Eno working with David Bowie's son. You know, while Bowie was like out at some meeting with his lawyers or something <laughs> like that, you know, doing the handling the Angie Bowie divorce or something like that. But like the the part about it that it's inspired is the part where Bowie just breaks into this fake language in the middle of the song. And you think it's like, oh, that's Polish, right? You know, you No, it's not. It's just like it's Bowie's version of Gregorian chant. Right, it's it's some pigeon language that he invented out of nothing, and it just sounds so authentic. And just the, the sort of the, the the audacity to just completely invent a phony language and trust that you're going to be able to get away with it, and to actually pull it off, is so impressive.
it's such a wonderful thing. The last thing I actually just want to mention about Low is that uh, its hit single, Sound and Vision, is a remarkable song. And I think it's remarkable, in, in fact, because it seems to be so cheerful and upbeat, you know, with almost this little, like, little pistons firing. Cheerful thing. You got Mary Hopkins, Tony Visconti's wife, singing the little female backing, backing vocals. But it's such a sad song, if you look at those lyrics. That's, that's him, again, like, you know, realizing that he has an incredibly hard road ahead of him. You know, blue, blue, electric blue. That's the color of my room where I will live. Pale blinds drawn all day. Nothing to eat, nothing to say. I'm going to sit right down and I'm going to wait for the gift of sound and vision drifting into my solitary. That is not a cheerful sentiment at all. He, it's basically him at the height of his sense of personal isolation. So he's saying, I've dug myself in so deep, I don't know if I'll ever be able to climb back out. Uh, and yet it's set to this incredibly poppy, upbeat, happy music, so much so that it was like, I think every BBC News show used that intro music as it's like, you know, Scott, you know about radio beds, right? You know, like you want to have like a nice long instrumental Absolutely. section at the front where you can talk over. Mm -hmm. That opening minute on Sound and Vision was like basically tailor-made for BBC DJs to just use to say like, well, the weather here in uh, Kent is something I can Oh, yes, there are delays on the M5. And, you know, like that kind of a thing. And so people kind of miss out on the, you know, the, the profound, the profound melancholy of that lyric, which is, I think, maybe summarizes what Lowe is always about. There's just such true emotional reality on these songs, even though they are strange and avant-garde and daring. Don't you wonder sometimes thing is is that people treated low as being some sort of horrifying you know uncommercial left turn uh low was not where david bowie was done with, with uncommercial left turns because ironically enough his next album heroes if you thought low's instrumentals were difficult to deal with <laughs> or if you thought some of low's songs were a little bit brusque boy heroes is is an absolutely uncompromising document. And I think it might be my second favorite album from this mm. era. And I know a lot, you know, some people won't disagree because I think a lot of people don't. Really, yeah. See, I, <laughs> we're going to gonna disagree about that yeah, one. But all right. Know. I understand scary monsters is great, my friend, but I'm just saying this, there's something about heroes and something about, it's just the ferocity of its 
refusal to compromise with anything other than what Bowie and Eno and Visconti just wanted to do with their music right at this point. Uh, I find it bracing. I find it bracing from Beauty and the Beast all the way to The Secret Life of Arabia. Uh, this is one that it, it can be terrifying at times. It can be it, you know, inspiring at times. It is never boring. certainly true but i would well actually no i wouldn't say that i think side two is pretty boring but um uh, but i you know we moved on from low before i could say my piece about side two but i will say it now that i i do not uh love either side twos um yeah you know side two of low uh was sort of germinated as Bowie was kind of working on preliminary soundtrack work for the man who fell to earth. And then in the end, they didn't want to use what he was working on and uh, they went in another direction. But uh, uh, it sounds to me, I mean, there's some nice bits of melody there, but it it sounds to me sort of inert. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the record company on these two albums in the sense that like, I, you know what what were they really supposed to do with the side two of low and heroes i mean this is it sounds like soundtrack music uh to a non-existent film now there is room for that brian Eno was actually recording albums called like music for films right (laughs) yes exactly Uh, yeah music for uh, films that don't yet exist um and then (laughs) but now but low side one of low i think is almost perfect i think the instrumentals on that side are brilliant as as you guys have both reiterated so i won't go back to those but i will say that beauty and the beast and joe the lion are two of the most unpleasant songs in the bowie catalog they are i I agree i agree that they are incredible statements but just i just find them incredibly grating like like fingernails on a blackboard grating like oh, we really, are gonna fight oh my yeah yeah i just and and i and it's not because i'm i'm, I'm a wimpy guy who only needs like pretty ballads because i love 
the parts of scary monsters that are kind of abrasive and ugly. But for me, there always has to be some kind of a melodic payoff. I think, for instance, on the next day, Bowie's very late album, uh, there's a lot of ugliness on that. But even if it's just a 30 second bridge, that's a kind of melodic reward is has to be there. And these two songs have not one shred of sunlight in them. They are dark and ugly then you get heroes when you listen to if you listen to beauty and the beast and joe the lion heroes is like the clouds part and finally (laughs) there is something actually nice to listen to and i also love sons of the silent age i mentioned it in passing uh in our first uh episode of the podcast um a, a truly brilliant cracked bizarre bowie song with crazy chord changes and chromaticism and things sons of the silent age listen to tracks by san and king dice sons of the silent age pick up in bars and cry only once sons of the silent age Make love only once, but dream and dream. Don't walk, they just glided and out of life. They never died, they just go to sleep one day. Blackout uh, seems like part three of Beauty and the Beast and Joe the Lion. Not much for me. And then side two puts me to sleep. So, how wrong is all these takes? I do not like Heroes. It is not, it is very low in my ranking of Bowie albums. And I know many people want to flame me alive for that, but here I stand. Well, this is, you know what? (laughs) <laughs> you know what? This is why the show. If we're always disagreeing with one another, what's the what's the fun in it? All right, Scott, yeah. your thoughts? Well, I am. I was. I was. I disappointed by Hero. So uh, I, I guess I, I lean more toward Damon's point of view on this album than mm. than Jeff's. But Jeff Jeff will save the day here in a moment. I I will split the difference with him on the first two tracks of the album. I I, I agree that. Joe the Lion is really a tough listen, but I, I think Beauty and the Beast is pretty good. Uh, I, I, I hear a little bit of Roxy music, uh, like the thrill of it all, uh, on, on uh, Beauty and the Beast.
later on, I don't mind blackout uh, either. I, I think that that's a, I mean, yes, it's it's really compressed and chaotic uh, and, and you feel you feel all of it as it plays. Uh, but Fripp's guitar is really nice on blackout. And, uh, you know, David Bowie shouting out, get me to the doctor uh, before this, this drum breakdown. I do like that. Uh, the rest of it, uh, outside of Heroes, which I'll come back to in, in a moment, uh, didn't do a lot for me. I, I, uh, I had mentioned, I, I think the instrumentals on low work really well. I don't think the instrumentals on Heroes work all that well, especially that, that three-song suite that sort of sweeps uh, into each other, one after the other, on side two. So, yeah, this this disappointed me a bit, especially having liked low really so, so much. Uh, part of it could be, I mean, Bowie always worked very loose, at least this portion of his career. And I know a lot of the songs here were essentially composed on the spot. You know, lyrics were impromptu as Bowie strode up to the microphone. Uh, maybe I, maybe a little more planning would, would make me like it a little better. Uh, on, on Heroes, and I know Jeff has a lengthy, lengthy thought on Heroes. So, uh, uh, I'll just like preface it by saying I'm going to agree with whatever Jeff says because he's right. Heroes is an amazing track. <laughs> uh, the one thing I wanted to mention that I had just read uh, about maybe a year ago, uh, the way that Tony Visconti got that amazing vocal performance from Bowie. The three microphones. The three microphones. Yes. This is just so incredible. Vocal gating progression. So he, they set it up with, with a microphone uh, nine inches from, from Bowie and one 20 feet from Bowie and one 50 feet from Bowie. And as each is triggered, so as he gets louder, the microphone closest to him shuts off. So he, he has to, you know, shout to be heard from those microphones 20 feet away and then 50 feet away, which is how you get that escalating tension and drama through that six minute uh, plus long song and by the end you feel that longing that desperation all, all that energy all of that emotion everything is thrown into that vocal performance largely because well largely due to the performance itself but 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 due to how this was set up in studio to get that performance it's a, it's a it's genius it really it's genius the way that that was set up to get that vocal take I couldn't agree more with the the you know it, the the genius of that production is one thing and, and Tony Visconti deserves so much more credit for. There's a great video. I don't know if it's still on YouTube uh but where he actually has the multi tracks and he sits there in front of the mixer uh, and and he just fades them in and out. He shows you how all the elements are brought together. You know how you know there's the drums dennis davis's drums is george murray's bass you know and then here's robert fripp's guitar and here's robert fripp's other guitar here's robert fripp's third guitar because he did like <laughs> multiple overtops and like how they invented that and then he shows you the vocal tricks you know but it it it's magnificent to realize how layered a production heroes is as a song uh but it also it ultimately comes down to david bowie's vocal performance on that song and then that's the when they recorded it I think it was the only song that they they already had a finished title for. They already knew it was called Heroes. And they weren't, in fact, entirely sure whether it was is just going to be an instrumental track or not. Because, you know, you listen to that. You can imagine it as being an instrumental, and it would work great. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but Bowie came up with this lyric that is... 
I mean, I just was talking about this on Twitter the other day. I think it's one of the most moving things of his entire career. You know, and then initially when the album came out, the song Heroes and the album title itself had scare quotes around. Right. Almost as if Bowie was a little bit reluctant to sort of sign on to something so openly sincere. He was a little afraid of, you know, sort of committing himself that much uh but those the scare quotes went away i mean by the time he was performing it like for 9-11 you know heroes and you know performing it at live aid for that matter during the 80s you know bowie had had embraced the reality of what this song was always about in his heart and what that song is really about is about just normal people flawed human clay rising up to become something great just for one day, just for one moment. Of course, they're recording this album in Berlin, in Hansa Studios, like literally right next to, to the Berlin Wall. And, you know, Bowie, the story actually is, I think he saw Tony Visconti out there making out with some girl. That with his knew. mistress. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and he used that as inspiration for a tale that he wanted to tell about lovers kissing, you know, embracing, finding some moment of, of, of romance and purity and, you know, human connection in the shadow of this giant symbol of oppression and darkness and evil. And that's how you get, you know, you know, I, I can remember standing by the wall and the guards shot above our heads and we kissed as though nothing could fall. But the shame, the shame was on the other side. We can beat them forever and ever, and we can just be heroes just for one day, just for one day. But who are those people? They're not perfect people, you know. They're not. They're not Superman. They're not. They're, they're not superheroes, you know. What does he say? Like, you know, I, I can. I'll be mean, or no, you. You can be mean, and I. I'll stay drunk all the time. Uh, it was just say like, yeah, we we both have some really you know nasty human failings. Uh, it doesn't matter because we're lovers and that is a fact that is that and by the time that song ends and and and, and Bowie cautions us he's like yeah so maybe we're nothing and nothing will help us maybe we're lying so then you better not stay but we can be safer just for one day that is a statement of uh, a profound statement of belief in the power the capacity that all of us individually has to even if it's just for a moment to rise above ourselves to rise to something greater to aspire to try to be better than the people that we are even if we think that we're the worst kinds of people on the planet during our normal everyday lives well just for a moment maybe we can find our courage and we can become greater so as you can tell i like that song
It is a great song. I mean, there's no denying it. It's one of Bowie's best. And it, as you said, with the vocals, the guitar, Robert Fripp makes his first appearance with Bowie on this album. He'll come back for Scary Monsters. Uh, he's His contribution is essential to the track. I mean, it is. it sounds like really nothing else ever. Really, I mean, you put on heroes, the the swirling, multi-track right. of Fripp's bizarre guitar filigrees over the drone that's underneath them. And I have seen the uh, the Tony Visconti video you're talking about, and he 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 does what you said. He's sitting at the mixing board, and he he pots up and down each of the separate guitar parts, and each of them individually sound like you you would never recognize what they are but you put them all together and it's like a symphony of guitar it's 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 eno's it's eno's version or you know eno and bowie's version of a wall you know the the wall of sound right i mean it's Mm -hmm. essentially you know creating that that wall through you know the the, multiple guitars and that drone and it's 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 a way of pushing all that on the listener so what, what I want to know is why you guys are such crackheads about the rest of this album. Because I, <laughs> I, I, okay, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start right now by saying that I, you both criticized Joe the Lion. Joe the Lion is one of my favorite songs on this record. Oh. Joe the Lion is what happens. So first of all, we, we've mentioned Fripp oh, a, a couple of times now. But what happened? Who is Robert Fripp? Well, if people who've listened to our King Crimson episode probably know who Robert Fripp is. Robert Fripp is one of my... Actually, he's literally my favorite guitarist of all time. All right, number one for me. All right, um, I have, you know I've probably got a short list that runs to about five, but number one has always been Robert Fripp for the work that he's done with so many artists, also primarily with King Crimson. My God, everything he does inspires me. But there's one thing that Robert Fripp does not know how to do, and he happily admits it: is that Robert Fripp cannot play the blues. So what <laughs> happened on Joe the Lion is that Brian Eno brought him in, sat him down, and said, "Play the blues on purpose." And so what you hear on Joe the Lion, just starting from right at the beginning, if you can believe it, and it's hard to believe, if you can believe it, that's Robert Fripp's take on what the blues is. The chaos of that song, to me. Uh, is stunning the way that it collapses into the middle eight you know know, damon was talking about how there there, there aren't any like sort of like you know melodic moments to you know hang on to on some of those songs i just disagree so much you know on on uh joe the line you have the it's monday slither down the greasy pipe so far so good you know no one saw you hollow over any freeway you will be like your dreams tonight and then it can it just casts itself back into the verse you know you get up and sleep you get up and sleep joe the lion made of iron um i am always taken from that taken with that song and i don't understand why you hate it so much or why scott doesn't like it nearly as much as well it's monday slither down the greasy pipe so far so good no one saw you hover over and if
Beast also, to me, is, you know, Scott himself mentioned earlier that there's something David Bowie has always had a knack for, and that's these fantastic introductions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's any more, intru- there's no more effective introduction in Bowie's entire career than the one on Beauty and the Beast. It works. It where, does. You know, you know, you juju, and then, then you hear like the groan of Fripp's guitar. And then you just think like, well, it's like, it's like, uh, like a lion just sort of opening its big cat jaws <laughs> as it yawns and you realize it's standing up. And then all of a sudden you hear the dun, 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 dun and then you realize that the lion is charging at you and that's the beast. Um, it is, uh, a, a terrifyingly beautiful avant-garde song. They released it as a single, which makes me laugh. It's like, what the hell were you thinking was going to happen when you released the song as a single? <laughs> Right, it was like that was that that was not gonna storm to the top of the charts. But you know, Bowie was Bowie. He gave zero Fs at this point. He was just releasing the songs that he thought were great. Also, want to speak up on behalf of the instrumental work on this album. Now, it's clear that there's a huge difference between the instrumental side of Heroes and the instrumental side of Low. Right? Low's instrumentals were melodic. Right? They were obviously very, you know, you can hum every single one of those songs. Uh, you can't really do that with the stuff on Heroes at all. You, you, you know, V2 Schneider, you can, but even that actually is not quite an instrumental. It does have the little line. Uh, it's another tribute to Crawford, by the way. The Schneider there is Florian Schneider. Um, but yeah, you can't really hum Moss Garden. But does that matter? I love Moss Garden. It's very Eno kind of a track. It, it does sound like you're sitting in like a Japanese rock garden with like, you know, there's rushing water and, you know, you can hear the gentle hiss and hum. There's like, you know, little you know, fish swimming in the koi pond down there and, and you're meditating. Um, I like that. I love the darkness of, you know, Nukon, which is this very sad, you know, squawky lament uh, about like another, like, I guess, I think it's like a Turkish neighborhood in, in West Germany or East Germany. Um, sense of doubt. Again, it's just these three descending notes. Dun, 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 dun. Um, this is not music that is for everyone. I grasp that. And, I, and I'm not claiming that it's, it's a failure for people to not like this kind of avant-garde instrumental music. But I can tell you there's a difference between good instrumental music and bad instrumental music. And this stuff is really good. And, of course, I think no one's mentioned that this album doesn't end with instrumentals. Right. It ends with The Secret Life of Arabia. I don't know how anybody could dislike that song. That's a Carlos Alomar song, actually, you know? You must see the movie The Sand in My Eyes. I walk through a desert storm where the heroine dies. Arabia. That's a fantastic little pop song kind of nestled away at the end of a side that is intentionally quite challenging. You must see the movie, the sand. 
I just think the whole thing holds up, and I guess it's, for me, Heroes is an entire package. It's the inspiration of the title track. It's the, sort of the the fire of the rest of the songs on side one, the weird thoughtfulness of the instrumentals, but then it's also that cover. I will stand on this rock. Uh, the best <laughs> album cover in David Bowie's entire career is that photograph he took on the cover of Heroes. I actually went as the cover of Heroes once for Halloween. <laughs> that is not a joke. I did that in college. I did. I black. I, I whitened my face. I wore a black leather jacket. I put in. I dilated one eye, and I oh put in a colored God. contact lens. And I did it. And, and only two people got the joke, but I was still proud of myself. Well, I, I will. I will grant you. It is a fantastic, iconic cover. His covers are often very, very good, and and right. this one is is excellent. Um, but uh, other than that, just two good songs. Ah, God damn it. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, you know what the funny thing is? You thought this music was weird and strange and difficult to listen to and difficult to play. Well, what did David Bowie do? First time in a while, he said, screw it. We're going to go tour all of this. He actually put out a live album. It's his best and most essential live album, frankly, of his entire career. It's called Stage. He, uh, he, Robert Fripp wasn't available to tour. I think Fripp was busy doing production. I think he was actually producing Peter Gabriel's album at the time, uh, Peter Gabriel 2. Um so he had to go find I told this story actually at the beginning of our last show uh, he had to go find a, a touring guitarist to help bring this music to life he obviously brought Dennis Davis and Carlos Alomar and, and you know George Murray out on the road with him uh, but who did he who did he hook up with uh, he, he found a guy named Adrian Ballou uh, and it's so funny he's like you know, I can't get the guy from King Crimson, but I'll get this other guy who will be in King, in King Crimson. <laughs> and of course, in King Crimson, much later on in the 2000s, would end up doing a cover version of Heroes. If there's one band that had a right to do it, it's these guys because Baloo played it live on this tour, and of course, Robert Fripp played it in the studio, and uh, he. That's actually the thing I most want to point out. I think the two things that impressed me the most about Stage, I think it's a really great live album. They, they, the one, they did like a funny thing almost as a joke on the audience. They played almost like half of the Ziggy Stardust album on the tour in a row. Like why? Just because you know David Bowie, when they were doing rehearsals for the tour, you know, you know the band expected them just like we're going to work up all this low heroes stuff, right? He's like, you know what? Why don't we just play a lot of Ziggy Stardust? Why? Because they won't <laughs> expect it. That's why. So like you get these like crazy weird takes on like you know Ziggy tunes that you had heard played with Mick Ronson. And then you hear, like, you know, electric violin playing the riff to Ziggy Stardust. You know, and, and, and I don't know. I like it. You, your versions of, like, Five Years and Soul Love and Star and Hang On to Yourself. It works. I think it No, works. they're all great. They're all great. It's a very good live album, and especially the Ziggy stuff. I love Ziggy Dunn as the Berlin albums. It's exactly. Great. I think the instrumentals, they pull them off well. I love the Warsaw. I love Speed of Life, Art Decade. They all work. But you know what I think the best thing is? And I just need to single this out. This is the clip, actually, if I'm going to drop in anything. The live version of Heroes here is – I can't say it's better than the original version. But it's something that deserves to be considered in the same sense because it's a very different – like I'm almost, kind of a warmer and more human take on it absolutely blows me away particularly when he gets to the he gets to the end this is what i mean when i say that the scare quotes were already falling off of that song by the time he started playing it live 
I think maybe he just realized that I cannot keep a layer of ironic distance from this piece of music anymore because it, it, it's just so stirring. And I think they do such a good job of it. We could be heroes, just for one day. We could be heroes, think this is a great album and uh you know it's just, you know i'm not really the kind of guy who will like recommend lots of david bowie live albums to people <laughs> i'm gonna say that if you're ever gonna you know check out one check out stage because it's just very interesting to see how you know he handles the um you know the, the berlin era stuff with a live band as opposed to like being trapped in a studio or in a darkened room yeah, I mean, the the one other than the little thing I said in passing about how great the Ziggy stuff is on here, it's really kind of funny. If you go to probably the easiest way for people to look this up would be to just go to the um, to the Wikipedia page for this release and look at how many versions of this album exist. Yeah. <laughs> there was the original 1978 version, and then it was it's been re-released over and over again. There's a 1991 release. There's a I was one of the first. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, every time they like they they add tracks. They basically the original album completely butchered the set list, like cut stuff out, put stuff in that didn't like in the wrong order, shifted things to side. They just totally out of order with insides and within the concert as a whole. And it's been slowly creeping back to a true document of what the <laughs> show was like. So if you're interested, I'm sure one of those versions will. <laughs> be appealing to you it's it's a little confusing but uh, but it's a very it's a very solid live album absolutely certainly miles better than uh, david live yeah, that's for sure i don't know if you have any deep thoughts i know you're not the biggest live album aficionado scott i'm not i did hear or i did listen to it i mean the one thing i'll say it, you know it's crack band really uh clearly adrian blue who's excellent on guitar and this is you know alomar murray davis uh live uh, backing up Bowie, and so it, the band sounds great. And I think the person I'm going to ask to do the introduction to our next album, the end of the so-called Berlin Trilogy, again, which I have to emphasize, only one album of which was actually recorded in Berlin, um, is an album called Lodger, which is basically recorded right on the heels of the stage tour. Same group, Adrian Ballou on guitar, um, same basic band, uh, this to me is a very different album 
than Lowe and Heroes in, in so many different ways. Those two are a pair that belong together. This one almost is sits off as a weird coda to the entire era. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that Damon is a big fan of this one, maybe more so than I am. So I want to give you the first chance to discuss it. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm gonna want to rip uh, scary monsters out of your hands too. But uh, but but Lodger is you know it's obviously it's flawed. First of all, start with the downside and then work up to the good. It it is not. It does not sound very good. Uh, uh, Visconti is the first to admit that uh, the sound quality on it was not very strong. They they mixed it quickly. He's tried to clean it up in subsequent re- remixing and remastering over the years, and it's better. But I, it is, I think it, actually, I think the remixes make it worse in some way. Do like, you that, really? Yeah. Well, they, 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 he he changed "Boys Keep Swinging" in a way that really offends me. He took out some of the guitar solos and replaced him with other ones. But that that's a minor point. Um, well, but the, I'm talking just sonically. It, it's a muddy and kind of flat sound. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what went wrong here. If the mics weren't right or the room wasn't great, but it's, it's something. Something uh, just doesn't pop in the sound, and nothing has really remedied that. So that's very unfortunate because I think I prefer this the best of the three uh, so-called Berlin albums because. First of all, there are 10 songs with lyrics, which for me is important. (laughs) Uh, Second of all, I like that it is Bowie dabbling in what later be called world music. Uh, This is sort of Bowie's take on Paul Simon's Graceland, like seven years early. Uh, This comes out in May of 79. There are some very good uh, songs on this record. I think Fantastic Voyage is a beautiful song, uh, which incidentally, this is also the one where Eno's experimentation was going haywire. Uh, uh, Some little tidbits about this. Fantastic Voyage and Boys Keep Swinging have the exact same chord charts. Um, if you look at the sheet music, they are identical for their chord changes. Uh, the the melodies are totally different, but they are backwards. I think it was actually all the young dudes backwards, and in fact, the tape actually plays on it. You know that whole like oh like vocal part in the middle of that. That's the all the young dudes backing vocals, and I've taken the tape, the song, and reversed it on my computer. <laughs> and you're damn right, it is the exact same tape. Yeah, I mean it's it's very it's very odd, but I think I like both of those songs very much. I think they work well. I think African Night Flight is one of the strangest Bowie tracks ever recorded, but I really love it. I think it is uh, it is a kind of deranged again version of the kind of thing that Paul Simon will be doing on Graceland, kind of going to Africa and trying to take sounds and polyrhythms uh also peter gabriel around this time especially on the fourth of the peter gabriel solo albums the one that got called security uh which comes out a couple years after this maybe three years after it you hear uh, i think overlaps with some of that on these tracks uh african night flight he sings at a million miles an hour and uh, and it has an incredibly weird polyrhythmic groove on it that's the one where eno is credited with cricket menace 
pests, you know, your bugs, and and it it's really bizarre. Gonna gonna move for a month, but a night fight, pushing my luck, go fly like a mad thing, air strip takeoffs, coming over rhino, born and slumberless, then he's struggle with a child who's screaming, dreaming, drowned by the prop, so steely, stunched, sick of me, sick of me, lost for the feel, I've crushed and laid, like a tiny old love one left unlaid. Seems like another day I could fly into the eye of God on high. Seems like another day I could fly into the eye of God on high, over the bushland, over the trees, wise like a orangutan, that was me. Move on is is very powerful. Red sails, very very effective. All all of these are on track are on side one. Uh, Yasasin is a song that's a Turkish word. Uh, that al- that song is very bizarre and strange, uh, but I think it, I think it works. I think it's powerful. Look back in anger is is a great very kind of. Bowie Eno kind of song that reminds me in some ways of Heroes. It's nowhere near in the League of Heroes, but it it has uh, it, it has uh, something that really reminds me of kind of Eno's melodic uh, contribution going on there. Uh, repetition, uh, a, a kind of bizarre minimalist song that's bass driven about a guy beating his wife, uh, and then Red Money, which is uh, Sister Midnight, kind of reimagined uh, from uh, the idiot. By Iggy Pop. So, I mean, all of those songs, I think, are strong as songs. I'm not a huge fan of DJ, which was one of the singles on the album. Uh, another thing to say about it is around this time, Bowie started working uh, with uh, David Mallet, a video director, and started making some early music videos that were some of the very best and most artistic. And the one for Bowie's Keep Swinging was notable because it included Bowie on a catwalk wearing uh, dresses as if he were a female fashion model and he would walk up to the microphone and then he smears his lipstick uh, each time he gets up to the microphone. And that was, uh, that was very, um, you know, for a, a, a young lad like myself watching MTV, that was definitely attention grabbing uh, <laughs> <laughs> around this time. I mean, I only saw it probably around 83. my case i think it's an experimental interesting album um you do get the sense that 
that kind of the Eno Bowie collaboration is maybe ending its terminus. You know, they're kind of pushing the experimentation further in the sense that I think reveals they're maybe getting a little bored with it and don't know where to go next. So I'm not at all surprised they sort of, uh, you know, went their own ways after this for several decades. But uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff there. I just wish it sounded a little better. Well, I think that's clear from the final track on the album. I mean, Red Money, which I like a lot, but, look, it, it, you know, it's it's the music from Sister Midnight, which was the very first song from really the Berlin period on, on the Iggy Pop album with uh, with new lyrics and, and redone. And, you know, Project Cancel is the lyric in, in the chorus. Um, there's, uh, I think, clearly an attempt to sort of put a cap on what they were doing through this period with with Red Money, making it the very last album or very last song on Lodger. It's a great song. It's got a great groove. Project Council. There's parts of Lodger, Red Money included, I think African Night Flight uh, a little bit, maybe even DJ, that indicate that Bowie is once again um, a little more aware of what's happening around him. Um, <laughs> for perhaps obvious reasons, he was not as much on, on the past albums, which is fine because he was charting his own course and, and doing some really breakthrough type stuff. But I, I think on Lodger, you, you start to hear the the way that Bowie was early in the career, as we talked on part one of the of, of this uh, of this episode string, uh, sort of you, you know be, becoming part of those scenes, the glam scene or whatever was happening around him. He would find the best of it and sort of be on that leading edge. It's kind of happening on, on Lodger again with some of the, the ways these songs are put together. Uh, African Night Flight and I think especially DJ are, are both songs that sound very Talking Heads-esque. You know, uh, mentioned, uh, I think Jeff was talking about the David Byrne delivery earlier. Uh, on DJ, that's a very David Byrne focal inflection song, uh, which Alamar co-wrote. Alamar co-wrote, uh, co-wrote Red Money. Alamar co-wrote DJ. Those two of my favorite tracks on the on the record. Adrian Blue is a great guitar sound on DJ and a wonderful solo uh, on that track. I think Modger is kind of half of a great album. I don't love first the first side. I think the great tracks here are on the <coughs> second side. Uh, DJ, uh, uh, Boys Keep Swinging, uh, Red Money, uh, Look Back look back in Anger. I don't know if it's the last song on the first side or first song on the second side, but I think the second side is, is much stronger uh, than the first side of Lodger. And I also think that there's really a break. I, I know it's part of the Berlin trilogy, but th- this is so different uh, in a lot of ways than what was happening on Low and uh, and Heroes. And actually may- maybe skew a little closer to Scary Monsters, in fact, in, t- in terms of sound and, and the way these songs are, are produced and, and presented 
to the public. So yeah, there's some interesting experimentation. Those experimentations sort of are a part of the songs as opposed to part of the instrumental part of the album, right? The, 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 the real experimentation isn't pushed to some of the instrumental tracks. It's sort of laid out in the middle of some of the songs on, on Lodger. So it, 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 it's, it's on its own. It's, I, I really don't even, I don't want to say consider it part of the trilogy. It certainly is. But, but musically, sonically, I think it's quite different than the past two albums. I mean, I think that, by the way, you know, you're right about Look Back in Anger being on the second side of the album. The first side of this album is is obviously thematically oriented, right? Well, what's the, the, the title, Lodger? It's kind of sometimes lost, I think, on American audiences. Any Brit understands what the term means. It means like you're an, you're living and you know an itinerant traveler living temporarily in like a hotel room or a house that you've rented out and of course what's the first half of the album it's about travel you know fantastic voyage an african night flight moving on uh and then and then of course it ends with uh, another one of those piratey songs i was making a joke joke thread on twitter the other day about songs about sailing and about (laughs) you know how how few there are that i think are really good but i think red sails is actually pretty good and it's really hard to beat the ending of it where it's like the hinterland the hinterland we're We're gonna sail sail to the hinterland it's silly but it's really fun And I, and I think Baloo actually talks about how when they brought him in, they brought him in after they'd recorded the basic tracks, right? And they said, you know, you know, Bowie and Eno and Visconti sat him down and said, like, we're not going to let you listen to this song in advance. We want you to just, we're going to turn it on and you're going to play. And the opening of that song where you hear, like, you know, uh, Baloo's back guitar feeding back to he says it was pure serendipity that he just happened to be playing in the right key by chance uh, to get that tone out of it with that that great opening to the song, which creates all of that tension. Um, but I agree with, with, with uh, what Scott said. That the second side of this album is really where it, it's always been for me. And that's why I consider it largely to be a disappointment. I don't like songs like The Assassin. Uh, I don't think Move On is really that inspiring a piece of music. African Night Flight does grow on you, again, because mm-hmm. it has some of those wacky moments like, you know, seems like another day I could fly into the eye of God on high. And it's, you know very very strange and sort of aggressively weird and i'm always up for that but if you talk about things that are aggressively weird i think that the best song on this album is dj and it does it's not really even close i i am actually again surprised that that damon with his his regrettable taste has identified it as one of the weaker songs on the record because i think it's an absolute masterpiece i think what what i love about it is it seems it's one of those songs that, that rests form out of chaos 
none of these should work. None of the elements should work. The the, 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 the violins, Simon House's violin is, is almost like <clears throat> a, a smear across the sonic spectrum. Uh, and then, you know, uh, a blue said like, yeah, like I, I was just like, you know, I combined three different guitar song, guitar takes on that. And what you just get is somehow a, a piece of chaos that works. But uh, that chorus, when it all comes back to, you know, I am a DJ, I am what I play. Can't turn around now. Can't turn around. That is a fantastically effective moment. One more. A song that you know sort of exemplifies where Eno and Bowie were trying to go in creating songs that they shouldn't really be songs in any rational sense. That they they obviously have been put together using sort of predetermined rules. You know, this is actually when Eno was most into using those oblique strategies cards that mm-hmm. he's famous for, where it's like you know you know imagine the wrong note or you know like that kind of stuff. There's a whole list of them. Uh, if you want to buy them, they cost a lot of money. You know, doesn't want to give away his secrets for free. Um, but uh, you get the sense that these are songs that have been sort of assembled artificially to create <clears throat> music that isn't something you would get naturally, but that still somehow works. I think on the second half of this album, it works well. It's funny. Look back in anger is the one where you know, as Damon told the story earlier about like you know, be pointing at a chalkboard at chords that were written on the board. He said, "Play this now, this now, this now, this." And Carlos Alomar really hated it. Actually, yes. he said it made yeah. him. He felt insulted by it. Like you know, don't tell me how to play. You know, like I'm Carlos Alomar for crying out loud. <laughs> and I know how to play. But I, you know, none of that comes through on the actual song. That song burns. That song is 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 just it's it's fire, pure fire from the opening seconds all the way to the end. It's relentless, and so none of none of uh, you know Alomar's resentment or what he perceived as the stiffness or the wrongness works. It comes through in that at all because honestly, the chords the chords that Eno was picking seemed to be the right chords. <laughs>
worked out pretty well. And then the last thing I'll have to say is that Boys Keep Swinging, it's got to be the greatest song about what, you know, cross-dressing or, uh, you know, you know, transgenderism. I'm not sure what it's about. Uh, or maybe it's just about, you know, how great it is to be a boy. But you're right, I always identify it with that music video where Bowie is doing the drag queen thing. You know, like, you know, he's, he's, he's dressed up in drag, you know, like an old, like, like a classic sort of German cabaret drag artist, which is, of course, what he'd been marinating in over the last several years. Uh, and then he does that move where he smears the lipstick, which is a classic drag move. It's what you do at the end of the act sort of as a way of breaking the spell and you know you're sort of de demonstrating the artificiality of the entire routine Boys. Artificiality of the entire routine has always been heightened for me by the fact that that's the song where everyone's switching instruments, where you have Bowie playing some of the most unwieldy guitar ever. It starts with an Adrian Beluso, and then it switches at the end, at the end of this thing, to some of you know Bowie like handling the guitar like it's like a like an angry fish that's flopping around in his hands. So he's just going like, ah, 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 and just like he's just, just blasting out like grunting chords on it that your five-year-old could play if your five-year-old didn't even know how to play guitar and yet for some reason within the context of the controlled chaos of that song it works and the song swings despite the fact that the guitarist is playing drums and the drummer is playing bass and the, you know the singer is playing guitar the whole thing comes together and it's it's another one of those great highlights of bowie's career during this period that said, this has always been the big dis the, the the big the disappointment, the relative disappointment of this part of Bowie's career. I think that of the three, you know, Eno albums, this one not only feels qualitatively different than the first two, but it also feels like it's a slightly lesser exercise. Maybe it is because he was becoming a little more aware of the world around him, as, as Scott points out. And so, you know, he was, you know, you know getting more interested in other musical trends mm. and he wasn't out on his own little island in his own bizarre galaxy or whatever well i liked it when Eno was when, <laughs> when bowie was in his own bizarre galaxy that's that's actually was really great it's, it's wonderful that's a place i want to stay in as long as i can um but yeah something about this one feels like it's 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 fitting that this was the last of their their trio the last of their collaborations it wasn't the last collaboration that David Bowie would be making with his producer, however, Tony Visconti, because 
And this is surprising. You might have thought, oh, well, it seems like this is a downward slope. Well, I'm going to give it back to Damon again because, man, he's been asking for this, not just during the show, but during the one the run-up to this show. He has made it extremely clear that this might be his single favorite David Bowie album of all time. Uh, it's one of my favorite David Bowie albums of all time. And this is the David Bowie album, which in an amusing way has always been the standard by which every single David Bowie album after it was was <laughs> measured by. Every time David Bowie would release an album in the 80s or in the 90s, you know, the reviews always say, oh, it's his best album since Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. You recommended off uh, off the podcast that I take a look at Nicholas Pegg's uh, sort of synoptic encyclopedic book, uh, David Bowie, uh, the complete David Bowie that has like everything you'd ever want to know about the guy. And he compiles, you know, a list after he talks about each album in his career uh, reviews of the albums. And it is true. Every single album after Let's Dance gets compared by someone to the best since scary monsters it's it's invariable it's it's really it it, it becomes the the final standard for him, for his high water mark and i will say i do think that it deserves that status now again this sort of fits in perfectly with our conversation up till now uh in that i respect and admire especially low but also heroes and lodger for what they are but i think that they constitute unlike many people who see them as kind of the best of bowie i see them as experiments in avant-garde of trying to incorporate into his music elements that come from outside of commercial popular music uh, in a way that really makes me respect him in the way that I don't respect all that many rock musicians. This, this very European, very German uh, sense of kind of pushing the boundaries and always wanting to be incorporating things from outside side of commercial pop music. I mean, we've talked about the, the Berlin records and artistically we can evaluate them as we have. But yeah, again, put ourselves for 30 seconds in the, the place of the record company. How are they supposed to market singles, especially in the United States, 
with these kinds of songs. Now, Bowie is good about always having some songs on every album that are potential singles, but there is a lot of difficult music on these albums. And the fact is, at Scary Monsters, that is still true to a remarkable degree. There is ugliness and abrasiveness on this album, but there are also fantastic songs. It also sounds impeccable. Visconti's production on this is probably, I think, the best sound he's ever gotten in the studio with Bowie. It sounds to this day impeccable. It could have been recorded last week. Um, and the the complexity of the arrangements on these songs um if you listen with headphones to a song like scary monsters it sounds like you are in the sonic equivalent of a haunted house it is it, it sounds like nothing it's the kind of song you listen to and you think I know there are rock musicians playing rock instruments on this but I almost can't imagine them actually generating this sound from their instruments because it's so weird it's it's a kind of uh, kind of cacophonous swirl of guitars being continuous in a way with the sound on heroes but it goes in a totally different demented scary direction uh and then ashes to ashes now in 79 bowie re-records uh, a version of space oddity his of course breakthrough first hit single semi-novelty song about major tom getting left in space he re-records it like an outtake from John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band. I don't mean that he yeah. does Primal Scream on it, but it is so stripped down. Could not possibly be more basic. Just ba drums, bass, and some piano, a little strum acoustic, but very very restrained no effects at all to the extent that in the original where bowie does the big almost histrionic you know 10 9 and then <laughs> does the big countdown and then the where it's supposed to be the rocket taking off and then it goes to the beautiful you know this is ground control the major tom part in this new version it's total silence dead silence for several measures it's one of the longest silences you'll ever hear you think it's over and then when it comes into the to that chorus part it's just a single drum beat boom 
and then you're into it. It's as spare as can be. It almost sounds like a funeral dirge. And I think what he was, the reason why he re-recorded that was that he was going back to this character of Major Tom, which he's going to revisit in what I consider to be maybe Bowie's greatest song, Ashes to Ashes, where he brings Major Tom back and we learn at least in this retelling that major Tom has been actually a metaphor for drug addiction and alienation that major Tom is actually a junkie that he never went into space. He actually cut himself off from the world around him through drugs and, and, and basically becoming the person that Bowie became in 75 and 76. So in a way, this is the most confessional and personal Bowie would ever get on a song like Ashes to Ashes. Just incredibly powerful images in the lyrics uh, where he sings the second verse uh, and begins, uh, time and again I tell myself I'll stay clean tonight, but the little green wheels are following me. Oh no, not again. I'm stuck with a valuable friend. I'm happy. Hope you're happy too. Uh, I've uh, it, it's just it's very powerful I've never done good things I've never done bad things I've never done anything out of the blue I want an a I, I want an axe to break the ice I want to come down right now with that image of course coming down from the drugs coming down from being major Tom lost in orbit alone um, and the if you listen once again with headphones especially to ashes to ashes it is just incredible production work you listen to to the uh, alomar's guitar work bitten's roy bitten is back uh, my yes. two favorite my two favorite bowie albums from this period he's back again playing piano on up the hill backwards on ashes to ashes and on the song i'll get to in a second they ran his piano through a kind of processor that makes gives it that distinctive sound that dunk, 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 where it sounds almost like uh, pizzicato strings on a violin or an attack then, piano yeah right. yeah yeah or yeah or attack piano but definitely process too and you listen on the kind of what is sort of a pre-chorus the first time when bowie is singing um uh he sings um, assorted details following and then the shrieking of nothing is killing me. That part, you there are multitudes of David Bowie in the background, mumbling, talking, saying things, overlapping with each other. There must be at least five or six of them just talking almost like words that major tom has been saying in the capsule over the years echoing around in space it's 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 an incredibly deep multi-layered uh piece of uh recording there
last thing I'll say, there's so much more I could say on this, but I don't want to hog all the time. Um, a, a, a totally underrated, neglected track, Teenage Wildlife. Ah, oh, damn it. Damn it, damn it. Oh, that, was my, that was my big one. All right, you well, do it. I, well, I will, I will leave you to talk about it. I won't go off on it too much other than to say that it is an incredible song. It is sort of musically, it's very much kind of Heroes Part 2, Robert Fripp, totally dominates mm-hmm. it with incredible melodic uh, filigrees throughout the track. And the lyrics are just, uh, it, it's, it's no one associates Bowie with like kind of confessional kind of uh, reflection on. Uh, My argument is that you've been, you should be doing that for David Bowie. Because it's yeah, so I know, much. I know, but you're right. And we, we talked about it on Word on the Wing that actually he does do that. It's totally not his reputation. He's seen as a so objective and ice cold and sort of standing back with the way he used to talk about aesthetic distance and so forth. But on a song like Teenage Wildlife, I mean, he's he is so clearly speaking to fame, to his imitators and the new romantic movement, which is coming up soon, inspired by this album. But the new wave, uh, you know, uh, Gary Newman and people like this, Devo, all these people who are imitators of him and coming to him for advice and, and the crowds of fans and they are. They are uh, they are driving him mad, and and uh, he he sings about it incredibly powerfully here. I again, I've been talking for a long time, so I'm going to hand it over to you, Jeff. If you want to pick up there or with something else on the album, go right ahead. But it is a fantastic record. <laughs> And then I'll give Scott a chance to talk because I think that 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 is for me the best song on this album. That song is going to make my top five at the end of the show. I think this is a song when I discovered it, I was just staggered. I had known the hit singles because they got like what was that Ryko Disc CD changes Bowie, not the original one, the one that has like the horrible remix of Fame on it. 
And it had Ashes to Ashes. It had fashion. And those are songs that are remarkable in their own ways. And I think Ashes to Ashes, you you basically discussed definitively. I don't really think I need to add to that. But when I finally found Scary Monsters, I put on Teenage Wildlife, and I was just flattened. I think there's something about it. First of all, a friend of mine, John, a friend of mine from high school, when I played it for him, the compliment that he paid it was like, when I was done, he was like, that song was seven minutes long because it doesn't feel like it's that long at all. That song goes so fast. It goes by so fast because it has so many, you know, different movements and parts to it musically. And and, and Bowie's vocal on it is is uh, again quasi operatic. You know, where well, how come you only won tomorrow? I'm not going to try to sing it because my son is trying to fall asleep in the other room. <laughs> but um, it is uh, a wonderful vocal performance uh, and there's all these different touches to it so you know, so you train by shadow boxing search for the truth um, these various movements that it slides through and then all of a sudden just emerging from the mix there it is Robert Fripp playing guitar this is um, of course I'm a massive King Crimson fan I love all of Robert Fripp's guest appearances I is you guys, I talked for a very long time about how much I love Heroes on you know you know on the previous hour of this show. Uh, this is his best ever performance on a David Bowie song, uh, and, and and what's so wonderful about it is that it's very it's so different than some of the other kinds of styles that he'd be bringing to songs on this record. So if you go listen to It's No Game. That's just like you know, I think the joke about it is that David Bowie asked him to play like Richie Blackmore, and and he's like, I don't really play like Richie Blackmore because I'm not really like you know a big Deep Purple guy, but I'll give you what I think you want. And then you have something like Fashion, which is just pure like atonal shredding. But this is lyrical, Robert Fripp. This is such a lyrical, lyrical guitar solo. And then at the, at the end. Where you know he find the final like climax of the songs, you know, where they'll say like, you know, I miss you, and he and he had to go well, each to his own. He was just another piece of teenage wildlife, and Bowie is going whoa 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 whoa, and then you know Fripp comes in with the guitar solo, which almost feels like it's a rainbow falling across, you know, your eardrums. It's just an unbelievably detailed, busy but never cluttered sonic portrait is um the song i think that i most want people who kind of only casually know david bowie but don't know like the more obscure tracks to go hunt down because you will not be disappointed
that, well, let Scott talk about this first before I go back and maybe like sweep up the ashes to ashes. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to both of you with great thoughts on teenage wildlife. And yeah, to me, to my ear, I mean, it, it reminds me so much of Heroes in the vibe, in the guitar, in that sort of drone that, that Fripp is playing. Uh, it, it is a fantastic track. Scary Monsters, to me, uh, sounds like an album in which both Visconti and Bowie would like somewhat of a do-over from Lodger. Visconti perhaps wants a better mix than what he got at the end of Lodger. He wants it to sound better. And I think uh, Bowie clearly on Scary Monsters has spent more time uh, slaving over these tracks, working on these tracks. We mentioned earlier how impromptu and, and how of the moment uh, a lot of the uh, songs on previous albums were. He did not know the lyrics until he stepped up to the microphone. I think there's some real work put into a number of these songs on Scary Monsters with with excellent results, really excellent results. Uh, this is an album, I, I do think it's top-heavy. I think the first side is a whole lot better than the second side, even though Teenage Wildlife is on uh, side two. But there are so many good moments um, throughout throughout Scary Monsters. And, and it also sort of puts a lid again on, on this era, which, you know, Damon mentioned everything after this is compared to Scary Monsters, best album since Scary Monsters. Scary Monsters does incorporate a whole lot of the 70s output you know there are some glammy moments there's the experimental production there's a little bit of kind of warped plastic sold in places um in some places he work he's working with the sounds of the of the time it, this kind of does sound like a 1980 album in places which is not uh you know damning it, it by any means but but it certainly sounds a little more modern in places uh, more so than past albums, but almost all these songs have pretty big hooks that you that you can't escape. Uh, I mean, David Bowie knows how to write a, a chorus. Uh, two songs, maybe three, uh, up the hill backwards from the first side. I, I, that's a great. It's it's only three fifteen. There's a lot squeezed into this three minutes of music. There are you know, a series of tempo changes throughout. The the drums are so heavy. They're almost almost electronic drum sounds and and the lyric on this you know the chorus <laughs> up the hill backwards you know you think about what it is don't don't watch where you're going don't 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 know how far you have to go sort of blind yourself press on do what you've got to do go up the hill backwards it's a great oh, it also has it also has one of my favorite single david bowie one-liners which is i'm okay you're so so you're so so yes <laughs> <laughs> Scary Monster is the, the title track. Um, is an amazing song and, and a blueprint 
for bands like Nine Inch Nails, who would later, uh, Trent Reznor would perform Scary Monsters with Bowie, I believe, in concert in, in, you know, far, far years to come. But there's such a drama, such a tension, such a paranoid atmosphere with the drums all over the place, that vocal distortion. I I wrote down here, it's kind of like a, it's a kitchen sink song in which everything is thrown out there. And of course it all works. All the stops are pulled. Um, You know, it's just, uh, it's one of the most aggressively rock songs too since Diamond Dogs. I mean, it's just flat out there in your face. And then Jeff mentioned earlier, you know, it might be my favorite song of the album, Fashion. Man, fashion's good. And I know, look, I, I, I know how good Fripp sounds on Teenage Wildlife, but he totally transforms fashion. Uh, and he transforms it without playing any, like, the the notes have nothing to do with the key of the song. Right. In. It is the just... Notes are no, it's just... It almost feels like it's pure noise. And in fact, Fripp, he will release his diary online so he actually released his diary entry from when he was recording this and he just says it's like you know i'm spraying white hot fire yeah. all over david bowie's new album <laughs> and, and that's what fashion is yeah. just the, the shred he, he's the just pure shred. he's twisting all around the rhythms of the song and, and by the way this is i think fashion was the last song recorded for the album and it's kind of a last stand for that great rhythm section it's the last time that davis yeah. and murray would play with bowie on an album like this and it really is a tour de force for those guys too uh great rhythm great dance i hear just a little george clinton in there at times it's just a great dance song with this robot clinton it's like you know it's like remember bill and ted's bogus journey where they replaced <laughs> bill and ted with robot bill and ted yes. This is this is robotic funk, you know, and it's right down to like you know the sort of fashion fascism, like yes, you know, yes, play on yes. words. We got the Goon Squad, and we're coming to town. town. Beep, beep. It's it's, it's so many beautiful little little influences tossed into the stew, and it all works. Yeah, and, uh, you know, both versions of It's No Game. Just going back, I I, I, I think the attention to detail and maybe the love of craft shines through in Scary Monsters. Each of these songs have these really high points, uh, just about all the songs, you know, have these real high points. You can tell there was some sort of uh, strategy, some sort of planning before actually getting it down on tape, and and, and it works well. I I don't think Scary Monsters is quite the equal of Station to Station or Low, um, but it probably is true (laughs) in its way that it is, right, the last, you know, great, great Bowie album for at least quite a long, long time. Uh, and some of the individual songs on here really 
do rise to his high standards. It's not an original observation, but it's just very clear that the Scary Monsters seems to be sort of a retrospective work that is a, <clears throat> a fusion, uh, a looking back on all of what he had done previously throughout the decade. You have the songcraft and the tunefulness of everything from Hunky Dory to Ziggy Stardust. You have the avant-garde sounds of the Berlin era. You have the experiments with funk and like you know you know R and B kind of sounds on fashion that you would get on like station to station. It's throwing all of the old and even like you know something like It's No Game Part Two feels like it could be a man who sold the world space oddity sort of you know song and in fact it was that's the funny thing about it because this is also an album that plunders a lot of his old music it's no game right it was actually written back in 1970 for the man who sold the world era a song called tired of my life and the thing about it that that's creepiest uh, of all is that 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 great lyric that incredibly memorable lyric at the end where you know you throw a rock in the road and it breaks into pieces or draw the blinds on yesterday and it's all so much scarier put a bullet in my brain and it makes all the papers that's you know he was weirdly prescient because of course this was released not long before john lennon was assassinated which incidentally is the reason david bowie didn't tour scary monsters he was expecting to and then he got really panicked because he there was a picture taken of mark david chapman trying to hang around david bowie uh, right before he decided to shoot John Lennon instead. Uh, that's a real thing. And because they were both recording and living in New York at the time. And uh, he just said, you know, I'm just going to give this a miss. Uh, but that's that lyric was written back in 1970 when he was living in Haddon Hall and wearing the man dress and all of that stuff. <laughs> and and, and it, it still somehow fits into this vision, uh, this 1980, 1979 modern vision. Uh and I, I, I really don't feel like I have too much more to add except to say that, you know. Uh, can I just jump in and add to yeah. your point about it being retrospective? Uh, yeah. We should note that on the back of the album cover. He has his uh, old, yeah. Little, yeah, little images of Aladdin Sane, Low Heroes, and Lodger all smudged in the artwork. It's great artwork, by the way, too. And yeah. the and the video for ashes to ashes was great and and very influential as well but it's it, that that shows that he it was it was like he was pausing for a moment looking back summing up taking account of himself his past his accomplishments and and then in a way closing a chapter and as we'll see you know as we move into part three uh that is very much the case there is a reason why people look back to not just the quality of if this is as good as scary monsters, but there's a way in which everything that comes after it is just different. Yeah, it feels different. I, I can't let um, scary monsters go by without at least commenting on one other thing. Uh, uh, it's no game. Part one, part two. Uh, it's probably what my favorite framing uh, effect that David Bowie has ever employed on any one of his albums. Uh, I absolutely adore. I don't know where the idea came from. I have no idea what kind of crack genius inspired David Bowie to get a Japanese actress <laughs> to read the lyrics in Japanese, but also <clears throat> read them in his really angry, stentorian voice. Like just this raging, screaming voice. Uh, it's literally the lyrics to It's No Game, part one, just translated into Japanese. And I think that uh, he had to obviously had to get someone to do it. Uh, and then he had to direct her to like, you know, I want you to do this like, you know, 
you're as angry as you've ever been and she spits hot fire it's it's the best co-vocal on any david bowie album ever and she doesn't <laughs> sing a note uh but it, it is amazing that like again this point i keep going back to the record company like who else what are they thinking who <laughs> else in, like who who aspires to commerciality as an artist you know if you're an avant-garde person then you're going to do stuff like that and far more but like the lead off track of your album is this assault of it's no game with the japanese barking here i mean it's it is it is aggressively anti-commercial and it it is interesting as a seed for the for part three of the podcast like it is astonishing how between this and let's dance clearly he 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 decided he wanted to make a change because <laughs> there is nothing like from it's no game part one to modern love opening uh let's dance i mean like <laughs> the same list here like what what are what are your aspirations here it could not be more different Maybe, maybe he was just spending too much time hanging out with Queen, and he wanted a taste of that commercial success. No, I, I actually have a theory about why, but we'll open uh, the next episode. That. Well, well, let us close this episode then with what I consider to be sort of the capstone on this era of David Bowie's career. And you know, for a lot of people, <clears throat> weirdly, I think uh, one of the most beloved songs that David Bowie ever recorded. And the reason I say weirdly is not because Under Pressure is a bad song. Far, far from it. Uh, but because neither David Bowie nor Queen seemed to have very much good to say about it at the time. They sort of were all both hanging around in Switzerland. Queen actually had like their own recording studio there. David Bowie was, I don't know, vacationing or whatever. He'd been doing a lot of recording there in past years as well. Uh, and they just decided, it's like, hey, well, hey, Superstar Jam Session, why don't we just put something together? They bluffed this thing out. Uh, and, you know, they were going to try to make it as informal as possible. They took, like, you know, I think it was uh, Roger Taylor's ba- – or John Deacon's bass line. And uh, then, you know, just, you know, bluffed out a song. And Freddie Mercury sang his part. And then David Bowie sang his part without them really consulting one another. And it all came together. And the song that they released is a big single. Uh, and I think it was a formally released as Queen with David Bowie. But it's – basically a song that belongs equally to both of them uh and none of them really ever had much great to say about it at the time they they never played it live bowie since revived it like much much later after freddie mercury passed away um but uh i don't understand that because everybody else thinks this is maybe like one of the four (laughs) or five greatest things that david bowie or queen have ever been involved with and these are 
artists that everybody seems to like a hell of a lot. Uh, I actually am going to – I mean, this is a very good chance of making my list here at the end of the show. I, I'm no different from everyone else. I am stunned by – the power of under pressure and i'm particularly stunned by it because it, it it's obviously its origins are so haphazard and sort of bluffed out loosey-goosey um they basically you know fumbled their way mm-hmm. into an all-time classic and it's such a great way to end this era because it's like it's 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 the classic bowie song that he didn't even really bother to acknowledge for years and years. It, it, it is astonishing for that, and uh, it, it, it's hard to understand exactly why. I mean, he even he even dissed it a few times in interviews, like, oh, I, I, I don't like how that turned out. I liked the demo better because I think the rudiments of the song started with Bowie. He had, a, he had a demo of a song called People on Streets, which obviously is one of the lines in the song, and, and then it got developed in... And Freddie Mercury added a bunch of other stuff, too. So it very much became a collaboration. But clearly something about the way, you know, maybe maybe something about uh, the Queen, the sound of it, Freddie Mercury's vocal or attack on it somehow. He just didn't like it much as, you know, in the sense of like, I don't like that song. (laughs) Um, So he didn't think much of it. But, uh, you know, I think later the fact that he did incorporate it into his sets, there's a fabulous version of it on the the reality. The reality tour. tour, Yeah, it's great. uh, With uh, Gail Ann Dorsey doing the vocal part of Freddie Mercury and doing it really, really well. Um, So clearly he, he had all kinds of commercial incentives to re you know reappropriate it later but hopefully i like to think that he came to understand that actually you know this is a pretty great track here <laughs> i think actually the way that worked is it was dorsey who came to him and said like i really just want to sing this he, he'd revived it once already i think um he'd had annie lennox come out and sing it with him i, I might have been that was the freddie, Mer- freddie burke tribute concert. <clears throat> yeah. right exactly but- yeah, but I, from what I just read in the Peg book, <laughs> the uh, the Dorsey thing was actually that Bowie came to her and asked oh, her okay. to do it, and she said that her favorite band in the world was Queen, and she cried when he asked her to sing it because okay, so my memory's a little off. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. I've just read the book you recommended. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sky, I know we already talked about this song we a did, lot on the, our Queen episode. The Queen episode. But what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't... I, clearly, my, my opinion hasn't changed since the Queen episode. Uh, it, it is... I, you know, I don't remember it being... You know, 
Jeff and I have very similar stories when it comes to our introduction to music and listening to kind of classic rock radio in the early 90s. I don't remember it being as omnipresent then as it was maybe 10, ten years after the fact. You know, I don't know, around 2000, maybe after Freddie Mercury's death. Um, when it sort of took on a deeper meaning and, and it was played a lot more often after that point. I, I could be totally wrong on that. That's just going by, by memory. But, um, but yeah, you know, you guys are, are clearly, you know, you're both right. I don't think either Bowie or, or, or Queen had a lot of great things to say about it. If I remember correctly, it was just kind of a slog to figure out how to actually do the thing. They, they both had these kind of song fragments and, uh, I think Deacon wrote the bass line, and if I remember the story correctly, he, he, he they went out to dinner. They came back, he forgot it, didn't know he how to play it. it. And, 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 and either Bowie or someone else. Someone had it on tape. Yeah, so right. I think someone had taped the the earlier uh, jam session, and they finally got that that uh, you know bass back, which is good for everyone, especially Deacon, considering you know what Vanilla Ice did about a decade after the fact. <laughs> um, but clearly, you still remember the Vanilla Ice uh, interview <laughs> yes. where he says, "Like it's okay, different." Well, they go. They go dum 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 da da dum dum, but we go dum 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 da da dum dum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, it, yeah, absolutely a, a classic song with two two singers in fine voice. I mean, Bowie with with the cocaine issues and sort of the changing of his voice uh, over the years, and 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 the songs he'd croon on and then occasionally hit the, the high notes. I mean, both Mercury and Bowie are in fine fine form throughout Under Pressure, and that, that that's what makes it. Very special, and of course, well, you know, either the first or second best duet from uh, uh, from uh, David Bowie in this this three year span or so, depending where you place the the Bing Crosby duet. <laughs> and when it, uh, you're, you're going to laugh about that, Damon, but that actually made my list as one of my favorite little <laughs> Christmas songs and our little uh, our Christmas song exclusive for the Patreon guests. Um, but yeah, I have always loved David Bowie and Bing Crosby doing oh, you know, "Peace oh, on Earth, Little Drummer Boy." Beautifully on that song, yeah. it's it's just absolutely. You know, that's one thing from the from the book, the, the the Nicholas Pegg book, that how many times you get quotes from people who've worked with Bowie in the studio who say, this guy's voice is amazing. He's never flat. He's always on key. Most of his songs were one or two takes because he's never off. And and you can hear that in the Bing Crosby, which was recorded live. There was mm-hmm. no auto anywhere there and he just sort of strolls on he's standing there next to this legend who dies like a few like a couple of days later i think and and bowie just harmonizes with him there live on television and it and it's impeccable absolutely impeccable all right well yeah that's the end of part two we told you we go through under pressure and we did uh, we come to the part of the episode where all three of us give you the, well, this will be tough, uh, the, the two albums and the five songs you must hear from David Bowie from this period we've covered in this show. It's just six albums, but it seems like it seems like so much more when you're trying to figure out what we're choosing here. Damon Linker, Senior Correspondent at The Week, our guest for these David Bowie episodes. You have the floor first, sir, for your two albums and five songs from this period. Okay, well, this is going to be very, very uh, unsurprising after the last uh, few hours here. Uh, my two album choices are Station to Station and Scary Monsters. What, and on your own? 
<laughs> very no. so you just present this you're like oh yeah no heroes yeah well not only that but i am going to be completely uh monomaniacal about these two albums and all five of my song choices <laughs> come from those two albums they are the song station to station and word on a wing and then scary monsters ashes to ashes and teenage wildlife uh, so my two songs, or my two albums, I should say, from this period are, are, are those ones back-to-back. Uh, -back. I, I think Low is the peak of this era, and just a slight step behind is Station to Station. And um, you're not going to go wrong by choosing essentially any of the albums made during this period, but those are the two I would recommend as the best. Uh, Song-wise... The title track from Station to Station is on this list, and yes, Heroes is also on this list. Somewhat predictable, but they're there for a reason. The, the, we talked about them for probably, you know, longer than the actual track length on each of them for a reason. Uh, elsewhere, off of uh, Low, uh, Always Crashing in the Same Car, I think is one that should be heard from this era. Uh, Jeff uh, praised this, and, uh, and I agree. You know, DJ, I think, is a fantastic track. And... Um, and fashion, uh, fashion from Scary Monsters. I, I just really love uh, fashion, so that goes on my list of five as well. Uh, over to Jeff. Well, Station to Station has made all of our lists officially now. I think it's <laughs> uh, great to see unanimity there. Uh, but my other choice is going to be designed to tailor-made, designed to needle Damon in the nose, and that, of course, is Heroes. I think yeah. Heroes is the second great album from this year. That does not to cast any aspersions on Low or Scary Monsters or even Young Americans, for that matter, which I think is a really underrated record. But, yeah, those are the two that I keep coming back to. Now, the songs, um, I've tried to do something a little more representative because I love this era of Bowie so much. This is by far my favorite era of David Bowie. I'm going to pick one from every one of these albums from 76 onwards. So I think from station to station, it's TVC15. TVC15 is actually my single favorite David Bowie song of all time. Uh, very near to that is a song that doesn't have any lyrics whatsoever, and that's A New Career in a New Town off of Low, a song that is just a sad, lonely instrumental about a man who's suddenly become completely unmoored from his life and doesn't know where his journeys, his wanderings are going to take him next. Third, of course, is Heroes. It's Heroes. I don't really see, need to say anything more about it than that. You know why I love it. Fourth is DJ from Lodger. It's an album I otherwise find to be a relative disappointment compared to the quality of the rest of this era, but DJ is a song that will always impress me. Uh, the fifth, of course, is Teenage Wildlife off of Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. And since I'm the host, and you know, I always like to break the rules like this, I will end by actually throwing in a sixth pick and say that, you know what? Popular or not, queen or not, under Pressure is one of the greatest songs that David Bowie ever recorded, and I can't really let the episode end without it. It's the ending of that song that will always get to me. I, I, Freddie Mercury does a fantastic job. I love it when he sings about how, you know, can't we give ourselves one more chance? Why can't we give love? But it's the way he fades out. Give love, give love. And then David Bowie comes back in mm -hmm. with that ending. It just stirs me so much because he says, love such an old-fashioned word, and love dares you to care for the people on the edge of the night and to change your way of caring about ourselves this is our last 
dance. That's a great lyric. And that's a lyric apparently that David Bowie didn't really think too much of at the time. Said, I wish I had done a better job with it. Nah, it was perfect as it is. That song is perfect as it is. And it's a fantastic way to end this episode of the show. Part two of our look at David Bowie. Damon Lenker, senior correspondent at The Week, writing three columns a week there about politics and culture. Find him online on Twitter at Damon Lenker. Damon, thanks so much. We'll come back and wrap things up with part three. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. It's been great. I can't wait for part three. <laughs> Jeff, we cram now for part three, as we sometimes do with these uh, lengthy discographies. Part three ends up covering a whole lot of years, and that's certainly the case with uh, David Bowie as well. Yeah, don't worry. We don't need to talk too much about Never Let Me Down or Tonight, all right, or Tin Machine, for that yeah. matter. I think there's some stuff that we can gloss over with a sort of you know judicious praise and or you know uh, criticism. Fine. Oh, man, Never Let Me Down. I, I do have – we have to make sure that, that – uh, I, I, I tell some uh, a very brief biographical thing through this next time. You you you, you a big fan of the Glass Spider Tour, Damon? No, mean? but I saw the Glass Spider Tour. That's what <laughs> I'm talking yeah. about. I, and it, it all has to. It loops back to the uh, story I told at the very top of the first episode. So I think you'll find that uh, kind of amusing. It's funny. All right, just just. Just for the fans to know, I want you to know we will spend about a full hour just discussing David Bowie's tights on the movie Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> or or you can head to Twitter and find the tweet storm on the tights, at uh, Esoteric CD. Uh, my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. Remember, our Patreon, keep the show ad-free, support, the, uh, support our efforts, uh, entry-level, mid-level, upper-level, you know, make your choices. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. And we want to say thank you to some of the people who have contributed and helped us out at the Patreon, including Andy Peasant, John Muller, Mike R., Scott Klabacha, Jacob Fricky, Alex Rudolfsky, Mary Curtis, Michael Evans, Christy Ferry, Mark Lutz, Lee Blackburn, Brian Cervantes, and Scott McCartney. Apologies if I mispronounced any of your names but we do very much appreciate all your support of Political Beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or NationalReview.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.